We'll hear argument first this morning in case 22-1219, Relentless versus the Department of Commerce. Mr. Martinez. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. For too long, Chevron has distorted the judicial process and undermined statutory interpretation. It should be overruled for three reasons. First, Chevron violates the Constitution. Article 3 empowers judges to say what the law is. It requires them to interpret federal statutes using their best and independent judgment. Chevron undermines that duty. It reallocates interpretive authority from courts to agencies, and it forces courts to adopt inferior agency constructions that are issued for political or policy reasons. In doing so, Chevron blocks judges from serving as faithful agents of Congress. It mandates judicial bias and encourages agency overreach. And by removing key checks on executive power, it threatens individual liberty. Chevron also violates the APA. The most straightforward reading of Section 706 requires de novo review of legal questions. Congress put constitutional and statutory interpretation on equal footing, and it required independent legal judgment as to both. As Justice Scalia wrote, the APA's text contemplates that courts, not agencies, will authoritatively resolve ambiguities (coughs) in statutes. And third, this Court's only justification for Chevron is the implied delegation theory. But that theory is a fiction. There's no reason to think that Congress intends every ambiguity and every agency statute to give agencies an ongoing power to interpret and reinterpret federal law in ways that override its best meaning. In this case, the agency misinterpreted the MSA to force struggling fishermen to pay up to 20% of their annual profits to federal agents. The government says that even if all nine of you agree with us that the agency's construction is worse than ours, you should nonetheless defer to that construction and uphold their program under Chevron. That's not consistent with the rule of law. If we have the best view of the statute, we should win this case. I welcome the Court's questions. Uh, Mr. Martinez, how much deference is uh, in tension with the judicial role? I think it's very much in tension, Your Honor. How much would it require? I mean, your argument is that Chevron deference is problematic. But how do we determine how much deference is too much deference? I think you've certainly crossed the line when you have a rule that says that we're going to allocate interpretive authority from from Article III courts to an agency. And so when when you've got deference that amounts to that, which is what Chevron deference is— then I think you've, you've crossed the line. Because what you've really done is... What I'm, tr- what I'm asking is how do we know where the line is? We uh, show deference. You, uh, there's skid more deference. Sure. Uh, we are deferential in fact-finding, et cetera. So I'm just trying to determine uh, whether uh, you're saying that we, if it's not de novo review... Uh, without any presumptions or deference, then it's problematic. I I think deference becomes problematic when it requires a judge to say that the law means X, when really the judge thinks the law means Y. I think Skidmore deference is not problematic because it doesn't require that. Skidmore deference essentially says, and and we would be very comfortable with Skidmore, that because the agency has has an important role to play in the process, often the agency has helped draft the statute The agency has knowledge of the policy context surrounding the statute and its implementation. Of course, courts should pay special attention to what agencies say. 
But the agency ultimately has to bring its expertise to bear in a way that's persuasive. And if the court isn't persuasive, if the court thinks that the law means X, even though the agency thinks the law means Y, then the court needs to go with the best interpretation of the statute, just like it does in every other area of statutory or constitutional interpretation. Let's suppose the statute says the Department of Transportation will set uh, length limits for trucks that are reasonable. Right. Uh, Is that a legal question for the court, or is that a policy question for the agency? I think that the the legal authority says they've got to be reasonable. That's a term that courts apply in many situations. I I think that a court looking at that statute would try to determine the best meaning of the statute, and the best meaning of the statute there would be that that the use of the term reasonable confers upon the agency uh, discretion to choose among uh, certain policy options. Now, that doesn't mean that the agency can just do whatever it wants because there are limits and the court has to police that limits. Michigan versus EPA is a good example. Uh, this Congress used a broad term like appropriate, and the question was, and which is similar to reasonable in giving the agency a, a range of discretion, but at the same time, when the agency said, well, we don't have to consider costs in figuring out whether something is appropriate, the court said no. That, that as a legal matter, the best interpretation of the word appropriate in the context of this statute requires the agency to consider Well, what costs. if the statute says that the agency can uh, regulate trunk, uh, truck length for vehicles that travel in interstate commerce? And it's a question whether or not interstate com- the, the, the delegation for interstate commerce is satisfied when particular right. circumstances are present. I, I think that that would be a case if, you're, if the court were called upon to interpret what if the dispute was about whether what interstate commerce means, I think that would be a classic legal question that would be a legal question for the court. And I think it actually highlights, because interstate commerce is probably there because of the constitutional limitations, it highlights the fact that really the same rule should apply to interpreting uh, constitutional well, provisions I mean, you as could ima- you can imagine situations where the interstate commerce determination is peculiarly fact-bound, you know, trucks tra- transferring uh, uh, loads and, and at uh, transfer points on the border? Is that in interstate commerce for each one or not? Uh, and isn't the policy judgment of the agency pertinent in that situation? I think certainly the policy judgment of the agency is, is pertinent in determining sort of the facts, uh, because the agency might be on the ground and understand the factual scenario. But I think there's a, a, an important legal component to that question, that in any other context, like, for example, if you were interpreting the Constitution, I think the court would would quite reasonably think it's its own job to interpret the constitutional requirement of interstate commerce, and would would say would give its best meaning. Well, let me give you a, a few more examples along the same lines, Mr. Martinez. Is a new product designed to promote healthy cholesterol levels a dietary supplement or a drug? Uh, sorry, can you give that one more time? A new product designed to promote healthy cholesterol levels is it a dietary supplement? That's a statutory term okay. or a drug? I, th- I think it would depend on, on the, the original understanding of the text of that statute in, read in context. You, I think that's a, you a want legal the, question the, uh, You think that the court should determine whether this new product is a dietary supplement or a drug without giving deference to the agency, where it is not clear from the text of the statute or from using any traditional methods of statutory interpretation whether, in fact, the new product is a dietary supplement or a drug. You want the courts to decide that? Justice Kagan, I think with respect to that question or any other 
of the a legal question. I think what the court would do, they're, they're going to be hard questions, but I think the court would bring all the traditional tools of construction to bear. They do that under would, Chevron. They, you know, we have made clear all the traditional tools. If you can find an answer, that is the answer. So the court is very rarely in the situation in which you're talking where it thinks the law means X and instead it says Y. If it thinks it means X under Chevron as we've understood it and made clear and reined it in a little bit over these last few years, it's supposed to say X. But sometimes law runs out. Sometimes there's a gap. Sometimes there's a genuine ambiguity. And I I don't know. In that case, I would rather have people at HHS telling me whether this new product was a dietary supplement or a drug. So, uh, Your Honor, I think a couple things. First of all, I don't think Chevron is a doctrine that only applies to tiebreaker 50-50 scenarios. It's never been understood that way. You know, Justice Scalia, in his famous article in 1989... It's not a tiebreaker. There are just some times where you look at a statute uh, and the most honest reading is that there's, there's, there's a gap there because but, of the limits of language, because of the limits of our ability to predict the future. <coughs> and so who fills that gap? But I, I guess what I would sort of push back on is I don't think there's a gap if the court looks at the statute and thinks, hey, this is a really hard case. It's a really close statute. 52% likely, I think, you know, I have 52% confidence that X is right. I'll give, 48% you, an, I'll give likely. you another one, Mr. Martinez. Does the term power production, I'm just, these are real cases. Right. These are, these are uh, prototypical Chevron cases. But, Does uh, the term power production capacity refer to AC power that is sent out to the electric grid or DC power that's produced by a solar panel? I think uh, same answer as the first hypothetical, but let me try to, let me try to sort of uh, give you a, a different framework for thinking about this problem. Let's imagine that that statute came to a court before an agency had even acted in the first place. What would a court do? Would a court look at the statu- a statutory term like that that's a hard presents a hard interpretive question and say, "Well, this is hard. It's sort of fifty-two forty-eight. It's kind of close. I think the law has run out, and I'm just not going to be able to decide this." The, I think the court would go with the best interpretation. The, 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 the court might. The court in that case would have to make a choice. But you see, here the court can say, "You know, the best option is to listen carefully and to uh, defer if it's reasonable." And if it's consistent with everything that we know that Congress has said, to defer to people who actually know things about these things, but to, you know, to people who understand the way particular questions fit within a broader statutory and regulatory scheme, to people who have understanding of the policies and of the facts that led to this. I'll give you a third example. Can, can this will be my last one, Mr. Martinez, and it's going to be my fairest one, because It's going to be one you know about, which is Chevron. Is a stationary source in the Clean Air Act, does it refer to whole plants or to each pollution-emitting device within the plant? Uh, We think that the decision in Chevron was reflected the best interpretation. Um, With much respect to uh, Justice Gorsuch's uh, mother's EPA, we we think that that was the best interpretation. But but can I just go back and, and I think what you described earlier about listening to the agency and taking into account all those things, our, our rule would allow that. That's Skidmore. I think the only difference between our rule and, and the, Skid, uh, what, the Skidmore sort of approach and the Chevron approach is that after listening to the agency's explanation of all the things that you said, if the court isn't persuaded by the agency that the agency's interpretation is correct, Chevron would say you still have to go with the agency. And that's just like a dramatic But why thing. not? Meaning, I, I think all of the play in disagreement is around the word ambiguity. 
I know that there have been some earlier cases that suggested if there were two plausible meanings, you went with the agency meaning. I think we've gone far beyond that. It has to be two reasonable meanings. Uh, assuming you, you make uh, an assumption that there is a best answer, I don't know how you can say there's a best answer when justices of this court routinely disagree. And we routinely disagree at 5-4. Is the best answer simply a majority answer? I don't think so. But Your Honor, if the, uh, I happen when I dissent to think the others got it wrong. Um, and they often do. But putting that aside, <laughs> but putting that aside, in those situations, there are two plausible, not merely plausible, there are two best answers. And the question is who makes the choice or helps you make the choice. And if the court can, can disagree reasonably and comes to that tiebreaker point, and it could be 51-49, it could, it could be 52-53, if it's that close, why shouldn't the person with all of the qualities you spoke about, the entity with all of the qualities, expertise, experience, on the ground, um, um, execution, uh, knowledge of consequences, why shouldn't deference be given to that entity? It just, Sotomayor, I think your explanation of ambiguity just now just proves the problem with Chevron. Because I think what you said is that whenever there's a case a statutory case in which the members of the court disagree with one another, that, that's essentially saying the statute's ambiguous because reasonable people can disagree. So that's what nobody believes well, about Chevron, Mr. Martinez. As we've described it, it's you, you work hard to figure out a statutory problem. You don't say, oh, it's difficult. Oh, there are two interpretations. Oh, you know, um, not everybody agrees with this in three seconds flat. You don't say that. You do everything you do. Look at the text. Look at legislative history if you believe in legislative history. Look at context. Look at every tool you can. And still there are places where we don't know whether this drug is a, is a, is a, uh, whether this product is a drug or a dietary supplement. And it's best to defer to people who do know, who have had long experience on the ground, who have seen a thousand of these kinds of situations. And, you know, judges should know what they don't know. I, I agree with that, I, Justice Kagan. But with, with all due respect, I, I think I understood Justice Sotomayor to be saying that whenever judge, justices of this court disagree about the best meaning of the statute, because obviously everyone on the court is reasonable, that shows that there's an ambiguity. If that's the test, which I think was the implication of the question, then that can't be wrong. That's much that wasn't my implication. One. My implication was that using all the statutory tools, you can still come up, <clears throat> using them in good faith, using them, you can still come up with no answer, well, I with think, no clear answer. I, th I think you can come up with no clear answer. Or no best answer. Because some statutes are hard, but I think you can come up with the best answer. And, I, and the reason I think that is best because... Best only because a majority agrees. But no, be, no because, because if you had the same statute with the same interpretive question posed to you without the agency having acted... I don't think you would say there's no answer here. I think you would choose the best answer. I mean, but Mr. Martinez, Martinez um, I guess I'm struggling to understand what, what, what's at stake here, given the questions, because as I understand uh, Justice Kagan's hypotheticals, which are, are hard ones, that one option would be to say 
it's ambiguous, and therefore the agency always wins. That, that's what I understood Chevron to mean, at least coming in here today. Another would be to listen carefully to both sides and provide special weight under Skidmore to a co-equal branch of government's views about the law, which one would think we would do anyway, and that they would have, have be considered great weight in arriving at the best answer, and that that's what a court would do if, if there were no interpretive principles uh, advanced by the executive branch, if there hadn't been some sort of rule or adjudication. Is that, is, is that correct? I, I think that's correct, and I think the difference between the Skidmore approach that you just laid out and the Chevron approach is just at the end of the day, once you've considered all the expertise and all the information the agency has to bear. Who decides? Who decides? Who, is the judge persuaded or not persuaded? Is the, the judge persuaded at the end of the day with proper deference given to a co-equal branch of government, or does the judge abdicate that responsibility and say automatically whatever the agency says wins? Right. Even even if the judge is not persuaded. But, Mr. Mr. Martinez, doesn't And then, doesn't and then that if I might just finish up. What's the effective difference of that? It seems to me that in the first case, when, when a judge says, here's the law, it's settled. We're done, right? It can be appealed, but at the end of the day, if the Supreme Court of the United States upholds that interpretation, we're finished. Whereas under the Chevron approach, are we finished? No. What happens? I think the agency can overrule what the court said, the agency can overrule what itself said. I think that's a very strange thing, that in every other area of statutory interpretation, we understand the law to have one fixed meaning, and the goal is to try to figure out that fixed meaning. But Chevron, by design, creates this world in which the agency is, is because there's this zone of discretion, the, the agency in ambiguity, the agency can kind of flip-flop and then force courts to flip-flop with them. And I'm struck on that score by um, the Brand X case, which involved broadband in which this court said, okay, agency, you automatically win with respect to one interpretation of the Bush administration, I believe it was. And then, of course, the next administration came back and proposed an opposite rule. Right. And then the next administration came back and flipped it back closer to the first. And as I understand it, the present administration is thinking about going back to where that's, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right, Justice Gorsuch, and I think it, it plays up the real problem. I mean, Chevron really is a reliance-destroying doctrine. Imagine if you're a, a person or a regulated entity and you're trying to figure out what the law is. You should be able to rely on the best interpretation of the law and not have to, you know, check the, the CFR every couple of years to see if the law has somehow changed, even though Congress hasn't acted. And that's the delta between Skidmore and Chevron. I think, I think that's right. I mean, Skidmore, I think, would allow for, for courts to give meaningful uh, weight and consideration to, to persuasive opinions by agencies. The only thing Skidmore doesn't do is require a court to give up its, its interpretive, ultimate interpretive say and defer to an interpretation that is not persuasive. Mr. Martinez, what, what I'm stuck on is what seems to be an assumption in your argument that every question posed uh, with respect to interpreting a statute is a legal one. I see Chevron as doing the very important work of helping courts stay away from policymaking. And so I'd, I'd like for you to sort of um, think of it through that lens and help me understand why, if we do away with Chevron's framework, we won't have a problem of courts actually making a policy decision. So Justice Kagan gave you a number of examples, 
And I think the reason why those examples are hard or why they're ambiguous or whatever is because at bottom, they're not asking legal questions. They're asking policy questions. How is it that stat, uh, you know, stationary source is to be defined? That's not really a legal question. I mean, there could be several reasonable ways of interpreting that. And at the end of the day, I think uh, the way I've been thinking about Chevron is Congress has given that policy choice to the agency. And my concern is that if we take away something like Chevron, the court will then suddenly become a policymaker by majority rule or not, making policy determinations. So how can we avoid that? So we agree, obviously, that the courts should not be in the business of policymaking. And I think the whole enterprise of statutory interpretation, when properly understood, is, is designed to take courts out of policymaking. Because uh, what, what the court is trying to do is, is act as a faithful agent of what Congress has done and find the best But isn't that, isn't that what Chevron does? I mean, isn't Chevron step one, even in this very case, asking the question, one, has Congress made that policy determination? So, for example, here, the question is whether or not monitors on the boats have to be paid for by the owner of the boat. Um, I see that as a policy question. Congress could have said yes or no. There's nothing about law really inherently in the question of should the monitors on the boats be paid for by the owners or the government. So step one is, has Congress in the statute answered that question? When we say no, everybody agrees that's not in the statute, then we say the agency can make that determination so long as they do so in a reasonable way. And the, and the courts sort of police the boundaries of reasonableness. But whether or not the monitors are paid for is not really a legal question. I, I think the question of whether or not the law allows the agency to to force the monitors to be paid for by private industry is absolutely a legal question. I, I agree with you that... But isn't Congress that the same question as to whether or not... Isn't that just another way of saying, can this policy determination be made by the agency? No, I, I don't think so. I think the difference is when the, when, the, when the policymaker, whether it's Congress or the agency, is sitting there and trying to figure out like what the best policy is, would the world be a better place if industry has to pay for these monitors or not, that's absolutely a policy question. Okay, so but, that's the question, but, right? But no, because when it comes to a court, the court is not figuring out what the best thing for the world is. The court is figuring out, well, what did Congress actually want here? But is I guess it, I'm afraid that the court really is figuring out what the best thing in the world is if we but, but look think, at it through your lens, right? Because if the answer to the question is, um, you know, should should they pay for it or not? The agency has a view, and unless we're deferring to that view, I don't see why we aren't overriding the, the agency's but, policy prerogative. The, the, the question that the court should be answering is not should agency should industry pay for the monitors. The question that the court should be answering is did Congress require or allow agent, uh, the industry to be forced to pay for the monitors. And that's a very different question. That's the difference between law and policymaking. And I think the whole assumption, the whole understanding of statutory interpretation under this Court's cases is there's a difference between law and policymaking. Judges are there not to exercise force or will. They're there to exercise judgment. Um, they're, they're serving as neutral umpires. They're not players on All right, the field. so how does that play out under your interpretation? So here. What, what is the question we're supposed to be answering? Uh, the question you're supposed to be at answering is, did, does this statute require, what, has Congress required, uh, either required the, the uh, monitors to be paid for by industry 
or has it given the agency the authority to make that decision? And I don't think — I think that is a legal — both of those versions of that question are legal questions, and the answer is no. Mr. Martinez, can I ask you a question about this line between law and policy? And I want to ask you in the context of one of Justice Kagan's examples, the dietary supplement or drug. Where is the line between something that would be then subject to arbitrary and capricious review and something that's a question of law? Because I'm just wondering whether we could say that the definition of dietary supplement or drug might be something that's a question of statutory interpretation in the context of the statute, but which category any one thing fell in might be a question of policy for the agency. Right. Is I, that possible? I, I think that's right. I think that would be more of a, of a, you know, application of law to fact or a factual question. But I think the core question of, like, you know, what is the meaning of dietary supplement, and I forget what the other alternative was, those are legal questions. But whether the particular cholesterol-reducing drug fell in one category or the other, I mean, you know, presumably that depends on how does this function? What is the mechanism by which it decreases cholesterol? I I think that's right. But I think it's — I do think it is important to retain the sort of legal component of that question and and make sure that the courts have authority over that legal component. I want to ask you something about your Article Three argument, too. You know, Justice Thomas asked you what the line is. And, you know, courts all of the time make judgments about whether things are reasonable. But I, I don't understand you to be disagreeing that things like whether something is, that an agency could be tasked with deciding what was the most feasible, most useful, most reasonable. Well, courts could do that too. So is that a delegation of judicial power that would offend Article Three in your view to give those kinds of no? I think to I think agency? the way to think about those kinds of of statutory provisions would be that the best interpretation of the statute given the nature of the word reasonable in context, is to confer a range of discretion on the agency. And so I think a court in that case, if if the agency is operating within the range of discretion, that's arbitrary and capricious review. If the agency is sort of operating at the edges, you have to figure out where the guardrails are. That's the legal question. So if if the statute says, you know, the agency can pick red, blue, or green, then the choice among those three options is for the agency. But if you have a a legal question like, oh, does pink count as red, that's a legal question. Thank you, uh, Mr. Martinez. Um, How much of an actual question on the ground uh, is this? Uh, I saw some study that said we haven't relied on Chevron for 14 years. Uh, And Judge Kethledge uh, has written, he's been a judge for 10 years, he's never uh, invoked Chevron uh, step two. You know, judges are used to deciding things, and when they get around to doing it, they tend to think what they've come up with uh, is not only the best answer, but it's the only answer. Uh, and and I just wonder how often this comes up. I think it comes up a lot, Your Honor. And the, this court hasn't relied on Chevron since 2016, but the lower courts still have to apply it. And I think these two cases, the, the two that you're going to hear this morning, sort of show what happens when when courts are applying this doctrine, because they're they're essentially getting to a point where they don't really have to figure out the best answer. And they can just, you know, instead of asking what, what does this statute mean, they can ask a different threshold question, which is, is this statute ambiguous enough that, that we should just, you know, let the agency do the work for us? Thank you. Justice Thomas? Justice Alito? <clears throat> Mr. Martinez, would you agree that one of the reasons why Chevron was originally so popular was concern that judges were allowing their policy views consciously or unconsciously, to, uh, to, to influence their interpretation of the statutes in question? Yes. Why was that fear unfounded? Why do you think now that the fear was unfounded? Well, I think three things. 
Uh, first of all, I think the fear has — it's reasonable to think the fear has diminished over time, regardless of what it was then, in large part due to the very salutary developments in the way that this Court and the lower courts generally now think about statutory construction. In the old days, there was a lot of reliance on legislative history and on sort of more free-form analysis that I think made it easier for policy considerations to infect the judicial decision-making process. But this Court has now made clear that, you know, really we should be text-focused, we should be focused on faithful agency to Congress. So I think that is one difference. I think another difference is courts now have become more appreciative of the fact that we're not just talking about you know, rules of, like, judicially made common law about how to interpret statutes. We have the APA here. Justice Scalia was a big defender of Chevron um, in its original incarnation, but over time came to realize that the APA had text that actually bore on this question. And I think when you're enforcing that text, you come to the same place as our Article Three argument, which is that courts have to exercise independent judgment. Do you think that the canons of interpretation that we have now and all of the other tools that we have in our statutory interpretation toolkit are like the Enigma machine, and so we have these statutes, and they're sort of written in code, and we run them through the Enigma machine, and uh, abracadabra, we have the best interpretation. Do you really think that's how it works? I think that what this Court does with respect to the normal canons of construction is it's used to, it's, it's generated those canons, it's rough rules of thumb to help guide the interpretive process because if the Court believes that the canons best approximate the best original meaning of the statute, especially, and then there's some canons that, that sort of are not purely textual canons, but that sort of are informed by constitutional, foundational constitutional values. I think Chevron's very different from that because with Chevron, you're doing something, uh, you're not trying to find the best interpretation anymore. You're, in fact, agreeing that you have to impose the not best interpretation because you have to defer. And so unlike all the other canons, Chevron is the only one that says to courts, you can stop doing your normal interpretive function, and we're going to allocate that interpretive function outside of Article 3. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Counted, or I think not I, the Solicitor General or someone has given us a list of 77 cases in which the court has used the Chevron um, uh, approach and uh, interpreted what the law was. Um, Your overruling Chevron puts a question to all those 77 cases. Uh, No, Your Honor. I think No, your out is um, it's stare decisis now. Right. So until the agency does something else, (coughs) and then people can come back because it's not stare decisis anymore. So I think with respect to the effects of of applying normal rules of construction here instead of Chevron, I'd say two things. Uh, First of all, the 70 holdings or whatever, the bottom line holdings in those cases would get stare decisis. So they would not be undermined. So there's no convulsive change of the law with respect to this. I don't understand how that happens. Once you have a new approach, I'm not sure. But let me move on to the second part of my question, which is the cases that come to the court are usually the hard cases. So you say in the last 14 years we've barely referenced Chevron. And do you know what the breakup is? How often have we been consistently upheld the agency in those cases? In in the cases since 2016? Yes. I I don't know the track record on that. I I know. It's interesting. Um, But I will say, I mean, there's some prominent — But putting that aside where we've disagreed, do you suggest that our disagreement was based on ignoring of Chevron or us doing exactly what you've 
say we should be doing, which is to say this is outside the bounds of reasonableness or around the guardrails because you're going outside of plausible I th- reasonable interpretation. I think the court in cases like the American Hospital case or the Digital Realty case, which I think are two really good recent examples, the court unanimously overturns the lower court decision because it does exactly the right thing. It does all the canons at step one, and it, and it essentially says, like, the statute is clear. But I think what those 9-0 decisions show is how confusing and unworkable Chevron is because the lower courts, you know, purported to do or didn't really do what they were supposed to do, and they came to the opposite conclusion, not necessarily because they thought that, that your interpretation wasn't the best, but rather because it thought that the statute was ambiguous enough that it required deference. And so oh, it was this, like, Counselor, threshold. So that judgment is inherent in every question. I mean, that, that kind of problem is just a part, not just of judging, but of decision-making period of life. And so it's not clear to me that the fact that there may be some ambiguity about what, how much ambiguity, the question that Justice Thomas asked, it doesn't take away from the basic premise of Chevron, which is a reasonable interpretation within the bounds of, of common statutory interpretation should be given deference. Right, but I, I do think the ambiguity trigger introduces a whole kind of threshold question that's very hard to apply neutrally. I mean, you have great judges. Judge Kethledge, I think, was referenced. He doesn't — he never found a case that required him to go past step one. Uh, judge Silberman, another uh, great judge, said that in most cases he thought the statute was ambiguous. And if there's that much disagreement, uh, um, then I think that's a sign that Chevron really isn't workable. And this Court has tried to rein in Chevron in numerous ways. Um, but I think that what all of those efforts show is that you, you kind of need a secret decoder ring to figure out what the law means under this Court's approach. You have to do step zero. You have to f- apply Mead. Then you have to do a robust step one inquiry, um, taking into account footnote nine and taking into account, you know, how much ambiguity is needed. In, this, in the D.C. Circuit, you have to do step one and a half, where you have to figure out whether the agency recognized that the statute was ambiguous. Uh, under Kaiser, there's maybe a step three that says you turn off deference when the agency's operating outside of its area of expertise, and then overlying all that, you've got the major questions doctrine. And so I think if, if, if well, that's, that's kind of what's... the court's creation. Right, but it's the court's creation because it's trying to solve the fundamental problem, which is that Chevron is doing something very weird. It's taking interpretive authority that belongs to courts, and it's giving it to agencies. So all of these bells and whistles are efforts to kind of claw it back to address the symptoms, but I think it's time for the court to address the disease, the underlying problem, which is Chevron itself. Justice Kagan? Uh, Mr. Martinez, I want you to think of this from Congress's perspective. So I was thinking... um, what is the next big piece of legislation on the horizon? And who knows, don't have a crystal ball, but I'm going to say, um, uh, I'm going to guess that it's artificial intelligence. So let's imagine Congress um, enacts an artificial intelligence bill, and it has all kinds of delegations. Maybe it creates an agency for the purpose, or maybe it uses existing agencies, and it has all kinds of delegations to that agency or agencies about how to regulate artificial intelligence so that this nation can capture uh, the, the, the opportunities but also meet the challenges of that. And then um, just by the nature of things and especially the nature of the subject, there are going to be all kinds of places where although there's not an explicit delegation, Congress um, has in effect left a gap. It has created an ambiguity. And what Congress is thinking is, do we want 
courts to fill that gap, or do we want an agency to fill that gap? When the normal techniques of legal interpretation have run out, on the matter of artificial intelligence, what does Congress want, Mr. Martinez? I think Congress wants courts to interpret the best interpretation of their uh, Congress apply doesn't the best know what that answer means. Congress knows that there are going to be gaps because Congress can hardly see a week in the future with respect to this subject, let alone a year or a decade in the future. And Congress knows that there are going to be things that it writes that it's just not going to be clear how this will apply or what it will mean with respect to countless factual situations that this country will have to address. Does the Congress want this Court to decide those questions, policy-leading questions of artificial intelligence? I I don't think Congress wants the Court to do policy. I think Congress wants the Court to do its ordinary function, which is interpret the law and and apply the best understanding of the law. And I think the the implication of your question is that this is some sort of intentional delegation by Congress. Um, The Chevron deference is is this implicit delegation. But I I don't think that's right. I think many people, um, including a very insightful article that that you wrote 20 years ago, make clear that this is fictional. This is delegation. Fictional just means is like academic speak for presumed. We are indeed presuming congressional intent. The congressional intent, you know, the the delegation is not explicit on the face of the statute. But what we're thinking is Congress knows things about different institutions, about what they know, about what they're competent with respect to. And Congress knows that this court and lower courts are not competent with respect to deciding all the questions about AI that are going to come up in the future. And what Congress wants, we presume, is for people who actually know about AI to decide those questions. And also those same people who know about AI are people who to some degree, in some way, are accountable to the political process. They have constituencies. They have fact-finding abilities. They are obligated to go consult with people. They report to a president who needs to be elected in all kinds of ways, both with respect to expertise and with respect to their connections to uh, the public and to other policy-making entities. Uh, Those are the people Congress wants to decide questions about AI. We don't even know what the questions are about AI, let alone the answers to them, we being the court. Uh, Justice Kagan, I think if we're trying to figure out what the, what the reasonable thing to infer that Congress has presumed, I think the far more reasonable presumption and the one that's most consistent with our constitutional structure is that Congress is going to presume that courts are going to do law, not policy. They're going to pick the best interpretation and enforce the best interpretation as to this statute in the exact same way that they would do it uh, with respect to any other uh, any other statute. And I think this case actually, you know, AI is a trickier example. But I think mean, about but this it's, case. it's a anyone... real example. I mean, this case, you know, whether it's, it's it was a correct interpretation or not a correct interpretation of Chevron is really not the issue that we're deciding here. The issue we're deciding here is more like that. It's more like the countless policy issues that are going to confront this country in the years and decades ag- ahead. Will courts be able to decide these issues as to things they know nothing about? Courts that are completely disconnected from the policy process, from the political process, um, uh, and, you know, that just don't have any expertise and and, uh, experience in an area? Or are people and agencies going to do that? That's what this case is about. I think the constitutional answer is that Congress needs to set the rules with respect to AI. It can delegate some policy-making discretion to agencies, but once the law is written and the interpretive function has begun, 
then that job is, is for the courts. And I think this case actually really is a good example because I think the problem with Chevron is that, like, no one really, I mean, I, I'm curious to see what the Solicitor General will say about this, but does anyone really think that Congress was presuming that the agency would get to decide the question of who pays for okay, the monitors? I have one last question. Um, do you think that Congress could codify, codify Chevron? I don't think so, because I think that, that a statute that codifies Chevron would say essentially that the interpretive authority has been reallocated from the court to the agency. I think that interpretive Congress authority — Congress cannot decide that in cases uh, after all the statutory tools have been used and there remains a gap or an ambiguity, Congress could not decide that it wants people who know something about something — to decide the questions that will be left over. I, I think that gives away uh, and, and would, would take away from courts and give to agencies core judicial interpretive authority. I don't think Congress could do that in the same way that Congress couldn't tell the president how to exercise the veto power or the pardon power. It can't tell courts how to do interpretation and to defer to someone else. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Do we have to decide that constitutional question? I think it makes sense to decide the constitutional question. That I think you could. Do we have to? I think you could resolve this case uh, under the APA, and we would certainly welcome uh, in an interpretation of the APA that comes out our way, especially if it's informed by constitutional avoidance principles that I think have a lot of salience here. Are, is anything in your argument um, suggest or depend upon the idea that judges should make or decide policy questions about AI or? Anything else? No. We 100% agree that judges should not do policy. We just think that they should do law, and that's in Chevron is about legal questions. Then there was some question about um, past decisions. And as you pointed out, this Court's moved away from using legislative history to some degree in favor of text. And we've made other changes in our interpretive approaches, too, without Congress's intervention, for example, in the sovereign immunity context, returning to the clear statement rule that had preexisted. This court's jurisprudence for 200 years, and then we wandered off into legislative history and circled back around and corrected our own mistake. We had to deal with the question of what to do with those precedents, and our answer was to leave them alone from from those ancient regimes, as we right. called them. Uh, are you asking us to to do anything different when it comes to Chevron? Uh, no, and if I could just explain what, how I think the world would look with respect to the old cases, I think stare decisis would apply to the holdings of those old cases. I don't think that, that anything would change. You know, stationary source would still uh, mean what it meant when, when the court issued that bottom line interpretation. And, and so I don't think that this would, a, a ruling uh, in favor of our side would, would require or entail overturning in any of those old cases. I think what we really care about is prospectively both with respect to the fishing uh, regulation here, but also with respect to other cases that come forward to the courts, making sure that courts are the ones doing the interpreting and not agencies. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? Uh, Several questions. First of all, on Skidmore, there was reference to Skidmore deference. And um, I guess I don't think that's the right term, uh, that it's respect or pay attention to, but... I think if we throw the term deference into Skidmore deference, we're going to walk into another problem um, like the one we have with Chevron deference. Some might say deference is ambiguous. Um, I think that that it's imprecise. Um, I think the better way — I think oftentimes when people say deference, what they mean is that 
if you think the answer is X, you should defer to someone else's answer, which is different. I don't think — I think absolutely that that would be inappropriate. So I would not use Skidmore deference because I think it, it runs the risk of, of giving that implication. I think that really we're talking about very serious consideration of the points that the agency makes, but ultimately you have to be persuaded. Um, and if you're persuaded, then that means that you've concluded that the agency has the best interpretation, and then you just apply the normal rules. Right. I thought Skidmore was about the power to persuade, not the power to control. Exactly. Yeah. We, I agree with that. Okay. On the um, constitutional issue that Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kagan were raising, you have lots of arguments here, and Mr. Clement does too, for overruling Chevron without reaching the constitutional issue. So um, I guess why, why would we reach it if, if we agreed with you on overruling Chevron on other grounds? I don't see the need to address uh, the hypothetical that Justice Kagan raised about Congress passing a Chevron-type regime. I think three things on that. Like I said earlier, we would certainly welcome overruling Chevron, especially under the APA and especially if informed by constitutional avoidance principles. But I think there are three reasons why you should consider going beyond that to the constitutional holding. There are going to be some cases that as a technical matter, Section 706 of the APA wouldn't, doesn't apply. And so if it's an APA holding, it may be that in those cases there might be lingering uncertainty about whether deference should, should apply to cases that aren't technically under Section 706. I think the second thing is that a lot of the analysis in figuring out what the duty under the APA to interpret the law, uh, I think a lot of that analysis really overlaps with the constitutional points. And I think if you, if you get to a place where you agree with us on the APA, it's not that far, uh, not that different to ultimately agree with us on the Constitution as well. And then finally, I would just say that although, of course, this Court often uh, prefers to rule on non-constitutional grounds, I think it's also recognized in cases like Pearson versus Callahan that there's going to be a value and a benefit to the judicial system to providing clarity about what the Constitution means. I think this, I would respectfully submit this is one of those situations. Uh, on the question of how much does Chevron matter on the ground, um, I think you addressed this a little bit by citing Judge Silberman, but do you want to elaborate on that? I mean, are, there are cases, I assume, that get to Chevron step two pretty regularly. Very regularly, Your Honor. It happens all the time. And I think if a case like this one or two cases like these two can get to Chevron step two, I think that suggests that it's really hard to figure out how Chevron step one is supposed to work. I mean, the digital realty case is another great example. That's a case where there was a statutory definition of the term whistleblower that required the person to have gone to the SEC and, and you know, submitted a, a complaint. And the government and the lower court concluded that that was ambiguous and that it might actually apply, it was reasonable to read the statute to not require a report to the SEC. So I think there are cases, there are examples like these that come up all the time. And, you know, thankfully this court doesn't have to intervene every single time. But the reason that the problem is there is because you've told lower courts how to do their interpretation. And as long as that instruction is out there, there are going to be a lot of cases that get it wrong, and you're not going to want to be in the business of sort of error correction on each one. Uh, on the question of how Congress can <coughs> operate uh, without Chevron, just want to elaborate on the, have you elaborate on that a little more? I, my understanding is Congress oftentimes will use terms like the agency can regulate uh, reasonable limits or appropriate uh, limits. And that gives, under State Farm, a lot of discretion to the agency to make choices to do what Justice Kagan was talking about, to think about the world as it exists five years from now or ten years from now and not have to worry uh, about going back to Congress. So the question really is for Congress that it's drafting 
choices, I think, what kinds of broad, capacious terms it uses as opposed to using more defined terms or statutory ter usual kinds of statutory language, yes, it can't rewrite that. At least that's how I thought Congress could operate in a world where uh, Chevron does not exist. I, I think that's exactly right, Justice Kavanaugh. And I think that, like I said earlier, in, in those situations, the court's job is basically figuring out what the best interpretation of that word is. And in many cases, maybe most cases, those types of capacious words uh, are basically the best understanding of those words is that Congress is, in fact, conferring the discretion on the agency. And that's very different from Chevron, where instead of having any sort of language like that or express language conferring a delegation, you're, you're basically applying this fictional implied delegation that, that is triggered by ambiguity, which is like, you know, frankly, it's, it's, it's not, it's fictional, it's made up. And so I think a world in which Congress, when it wants to delegate to agencies, needs to be expressed and use language like that or other language, I think is a better world from the perspective of, of Article One and from Article Three. Thank you. Justice Barrett. Mr. Martinez, I want to return to the question that Justice Sotomayor raised about stare decisis. So you said that overruling Chevron wouldn't have an effect on the many cases that have gotten to Chevron Step 2 and then deferred to the agency. You said, am I — did I understand you correctly? Those bottom-line holdings would be right, okay, yeah. Okay. But the bottom-line holdings in those cases, if the Court did defer at Step 2, are simply that the agency's interpretation was reasonable. And maybe sometimes, like in Brand X, they might even be like, well, we would reach a different interpretation if it were our call, our call but it's ambiguous, so the agency can decide. So maybe nothing happens immediately to those cases, but isn't the door then open for litigants to come back and say, well, stationary source really means X, or, you know, broadband or whatever the specific term was in, in brand X. So isn't it inviting a flood of litigation, even if for the moment those holdings stay intact? So I would say the bottom line holdings in those cases, I would just quibble slightly. I would, I would describe the bottom line holdings as being that the agency's action was lawful. And so that's the bottom line. I think it's true that people could come and say, look, the interpretive methods have changed since this bottom line holding um, was issued, and we think that, that, you know, a different result now should apply. And, and that's why courts consider requests to overturn precedent. But I just think that they would apply the same standards that they would apply to other stare decisis inquiries. And I think it would be the rare case that would require that where a court would say this, this decision not only um, isn't the best interpretation, but it's like so bad and so practically important that we're going to overturn our own precedent. So I think that would be the safeguard. So when you say that the bottom line holding, so you've kind of changed the level of generality, right? If you say the bottom line holding is that the agency's interpretation is lawful, you think it's not open to people to come back then and say, well, it's actually not lawful. This is wrong. The court got it wrong because the best interpretation isn't the agency's. I, I think litigants could make that argument, but I think they would have to overcome the normal stare decisis test, which is very hard to overcome. And so they would probably have to show that it's really wrong and really practically important. And I think most courts, and I imagine this court, is, is going to find that that threshold is, is met like almost very rarely, maybe almost never. And so as a practical matter, you're not going to be upending, you know, those, those bottom line decisions, okay. even if you let people in theory come and challenge them. So let me ask you, you, you just referred to the, you know, serious stare decisis threshold, you know, that would have to yeah. be overcome. So let's talk about the stare decisis threshold here. Why is it different here than it was in Kaiser? You know, in Kaiser, the court declined to overrule our, and the part of the opinion that was for a majority of the court was largely, it was on stare decisis grounds. So why would a different result obtain here? 
I think my first answer is that the Chief Justice's opinion suggested it might be different. Um, <laughs> and I think the reasons why it's, 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 it really is different is because there are important differences between Chevron and our. The most important that I think plays on the reliance question is this idea that Chevron allows, and, and almost like a feature of Chevron, not a bug, is that it encourages and allows agencies to flip-flop. And so the reliance consideration with respect to Chevron is, uh, is much uh, you know, weaker uh, for, for, for the government side because the agency is allowed to flip-flop all at once, whereas with our deference, the idea is that the agency, it's going to be very hard for the agency to flip-flop. So I think it's more important to correct Chevron because it's, it has that mistake that our doesn't. There are other differences. Uh, you know, Chevron is problematic because it lets agencies uh, say what Congress intended or what Congress's meaning was as opposed to just saying what they themselves meant with the regulation that they themselves enacted. So I think the, the kind of, you know, the deference makes more sense when you're deferring to the entity that actually created the provision in question as opposed to deferring to their interpretation of, of a provision that was created by Congress. I think in addition, you know, Chevron is not limited to agency expertise. She uh, our is limited to agency expertise. So our is, is narrower. Um, and then finally, I do think there's a difference even with respect to the APA where I think the APA more clearly puts constitutional interpretation and statutory interpretation on equal footing. And that might play into the analysis. You know, this court, the plurality in, um, in Kaiser sort of emphasized that, that uh, the APA was enacted after Seminole, a year after Seminole Rock. And so maybe that was a basis to think that, that Congress was okay with something that looked like our deference. But that's not true here. Chevron came many years after the APA. So I think there are a lot of differences that really flesh out, um, I think, the important point that the Chief Justice was making, which is that the analysis there doesn't automatically transfer over to Chevron. Thanks. Justice Jackson? So I've heard you say several times that you agree that judges should not be doing policy, they should be doing law. And I guess um, I, too, agree with that. And my concern is that it's actually not as easy as it seems to distinguish between the two. Um, and, and that it appears in a lot of your answers that you sort of say, well, you come up with the best answer. It's a legal question. Um, but I'm not so sure it's a legal question, as opposed to is it the best under the sort of policy regime. And I think that there's a real separation of powers uh, danger here to the extent that you're saying that um, the judges are deciding whether or not this is something the agency should uh, do or not, um, whether this is a legal question or not. You know, there's the old saying that when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, and I'm concerned that judges are going to look at all of the questions related to a statute and call them legal if we don't have something like Chevron that requires judges to be actually thinking about their proper role relative to this issue. So how can you assuage my concern in that regard? So I think two points. I think the first point I would make on the distinction between law and policy and how they kind of maybe seem like they blur together, I think that, that there are just so many instances in which a court can get a question that comes before it that maybe it involves an agency regime, but the agency hasn't acted yet. And I think the court in that circumstance just does its best. It doesn't have guidance. It doesn't have instructions from the agency. It does its best. And I think when it does but its does best... But does it have to, Mr. Martinez? I mean, there are, there are other regimes in which a court is presented with a question and it identifies it as a policy question that it cannot answer. So but, what I'm saying is that it's not necessarily true that just because the court gets an issue, it automatically says, oh, this must be legal, I have to act. 
But if, if the court got, just to go back to Justice Kagan's hypothetical, the question of what, what is a dietary supplement, and the agency hadn't acted, I think the court would absolutely give meaning to that. And I don't think the court would think that what it's doing is making policy. Well, let me give you a, a particular example, all right? In the Food and Drug uh, and Cosmetic Act situation, new drugs can be approved only if uh, an adequate, quote, adequate and well-controlled investigation, end quote, shows that the drug will have its atten- intended effect. This term, what is an adequate and well-controlled investigation, is it your view that Congress wanted the courts to decide uh, what it means for a study to be adequate or well-controlled? I mean, how would a court go about determining whether that's something it's supposed to be doing or the agency is supposed I to do? I think that the, the court would, would do exactly the kind of analysis there that it would do if it had that exact same statute but without the agency acting. And I think what that means is the court would go in and it would do everything that, that we all agree should happen uh, under step one. I think the only difference is that if after doing that step one analysis, the court concludes that there's a better view and a less better view, then the court should just go with the but better when, view. But when does the court decide that this is not my call? Well, I, think I, I guess that's the part that's dropping out for me in your analysis. You just say, you know, we do a step one analysis and then the court makes the interpretive decision about what this means. I, and I, I guess... I, I, I don't think the court ever says that it's not my call if the question in front of it is a question of statutory interpretation, because I think that's So every job. statutory interpretation question is one of law that a court can decide, you're saying? Yes. There's the, never a statutory interpretation question that is one of policy that you see Congress may have been intending the agency to answer? I think by definition, if we're talking about interpreting a statute, then you're talking about a legal question in the same way that if you're talking about interpreting the Constitution, then you have a constitutional question. No one would say that you would apply deference there. So um, there's never a world. Maybe we just differ on this. I'm worried about the courts becoming uber legislators. That when we have a policy, so one way that some of the experts have looked at this, some of the legal legal scholars have looked at this, is that they say when there's an ambiguity, there are actually different kinds of ambiguities. So you might have a situation in which there's a statutory term and it's ambiguous in the sense that it, there are several reasonable meanings of what stationary source might mean, for example. Several different ways that you could define that. When you get down to that level of analysis, the question is who's going to make the choice as between what those meanings are. And I hear you saying there might be a best choice, but I guess if we're talking about a policy question, there are several reasonable meanings. Why should the court be the one to make that determination? And and couldn't we be in a world where Congress intended for the agency to actually decide which choice is best? I think where I I would just sort of disagree is what you said at the end. You sort of assumed that it was a policy question. I would just say that if if the question is the meaning of a statutory term, that's an interpretive question that's a legal question and would be treated as a legal question if you got that exact same question before the agency. All right, let me ask you one more thing about practical implications. So let's say it is, you know, a legal question, as you have analyzed, adequate and control investigations. Um, If I'm an agency and I'm trying to be responsible, um, how is this going to work as a practical matter? Is the agency going to go to court every time it gets one of these undefined uh, terms in a statute and seek uh, you know, a declaratory judgment as to the meaning of adequate and controlled and well-controlled investigations before it goes forward with its policy? No. 
All right. So the agency can come up with its own definition and implement it and then wait to be sued with respect to that. Um, and, and, it, and every term <coughs> undefined in a statute we're going to have litigation about. No, no, Your Honor. I think what the agency has to do is what everyone else has to do, which is try to figure out what the, what the law means and then act accordingly. And if someone challenges that, then that'll get sorted out. If there's a, a, stat, a legal question, a statutory interpretation question, then that'll get sorted out by the courts. But the agency isn't, like, paralyzed. What do we do about this, the chaos that we talked about in, in the city of Arlington case that comes from perhaps having different courts, right? We have 11 different, uh, you know, uh, jurisdictions that have legal authority. So something like the definition of adequate and well-controlled investigations, you say the courts will sort it out. Well, first of all, it will take years, perhaps, for the courts to sort it out. What is the agency supposed to be doing in the meantime? And different courts from all of these different jurisdictions could actually have a different view, as Justice Sotomayor pointed out, of what adequate and well-controlled investigations are supposed to do, So, a means. So isn't it sort of impractical and chaotic to have a world in which every undefined term in a statute is subject to litigation if you're trying to govern? Well, I I don't think it's impractical. I think that to the extent that Justice Kagan's questions sort of indicate that there's actually a relatively small set of cases in which Chevron's going to make a difference, you're going to have that same problem with respect to the cases that maybe 20 years ago under a looser approach to Chevron wouldn't have gotten down. Wouldn't you have more of a problem in a world in which we've gotten rid of Chevron because it's going to give incentives to parties to raise legal issues that they wouldn't have raised before? I, I don't think it's a problem to, to have parties if they think an agency is overstepping the boundaries and if they're right that... No, I understand. But under a Chevron regime, right, if that's the background rule, then you're going to have parties thinking twice before going down a litigation road with respect to a term because they're going to say at the end of the day the right. agency has a reasonable interpretation. That's what the court's you, going to find. So it's not right. any you're, you're going to have parties being less likely to challenge agency action that is unlawful under the best interpretation of the statute because they know that when they go into court, the judge is not going to apply its independent neutral judgment and instead is going to tilt the scales and defer to the agency. Thank you. And Thank you, counsel. General Prelager. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The Chevron framework is a bedrock principle of administrative law with deep roots in this court's jurisprudence. Overruling a precedent is never a small matter, but overruling a precedent as foundational as Chevron should require a truly extraordinary justification, and petitioners don't have one. They say that Article Three requires de novo review of all statutory interpretation questions but that's flatly inconsistent with precedent going back to the Marshall Court and with the traditional limits on mandamus jurisdiction, which governed most judicial review of executive action in the early republic. They've said that Chevron violates due process, but the application of deferential standards of review doesn't constitute impermissible bias. And they contend that the APA requires de novo review, but that theory is inconsistent with the statute's history and the way it's been understood ever since its enactment, including in the more than 70 cases in which this court has relied on Chevron to sustain an agency's interpretation. On top of all that, reliance interests in this context are at their apex. Congress, agencies, states, regulated parties, and the American public have all relied on Chevron and the regulations upheld under it to make important decisions that could be upended by overruling that framework. 
thousands of judicial decisions sustaining an agency's rulemaking or adjudication as reasonable would be open to challenge. And that profound disruption is especially unwarranted because Congress could modify or overrule the Chevron framework at any time. Congress has many times considered proposals to do so, but it's never taken that step. Instead, Congress has legislated for decades with Chevron as the background rule informing the degree of discretion that Congress has chosen to confer on federal agencies. Just five years ago in Kaiser, this court declined similar calls to overrule the Our Deference Doctrine based on many of the same flawed arguments that petitioners are making here. The court observed that it would be the rare overruling that would introduce so much instability into so many areas of the law all in one blow. Overruling Chevron would be an even greater and unwarranted shock to the legal system. I welcome the court's questions. Uh, General, uh, Section 706 of the uh, APA was not mentioned in Chevron. Um, how would you reconcile uh, the requirements of, of on this on federal courts under 706 with your view of Chevron? Section 706 says that courts should decide all relevant questions of law and interpret statutes, but none of that is inconsistent with the Chevron framework because 706 doesn't prescribe a universal standard of review to govern those kinds of statutory interpretation questions. And the courts are interpreting statutes when they walk through the Chevron framework. First, there's all the work that the court does at step one of Chevron. That is using the tools of interpretation to identify whether Congress has spoken to the issue in the case and if so, Chevron said, that's the end of the matter. So in that sense, in a step one case, the court has, of course, interpreted the statute. But in a situation where at the end of that interpretive process, the court is left with no conclusion that it's actually able to ascertain that Congress has spoken, that in that circumstance, I think the right interpretation of the statute is that Congress left a gap or maybe created an ambiguity and simultaneously vested the agency with the important responsibility pursuant to an express delegation to administer that statute with the regulations that have the force of law. And that's what then t tells the court what the relevant question of law that's left over to resolve is. It's whether the agency acted within the bounds that Congress itself prescribed. So I don't think there's any fundamental incompatibility with Section 706 and what Chevron dictates about how to think about Congress's delegations. Can I say, Counselor um, General, um, I know plenty of statutes where Congress uses the word de novo. It didn't hear, correct, in 706? That's correct. Um, I thought it, and I do think it would be revolutionary to say that Congress can't limit judicial review. EPA is the quintessential question where we not only uh, give deference to state court decisions, we say even if it got it wrong, if it didn't get it unreasonably wrong, we are superseding the court's ability to declare a violation of the Constitution and give relief. So I, I, I think it would be radical to say that Congress couldn't um, implement Chevron. In fact, it, there is legislation to overrule Chevron, requiring de novo review that hasn't passed. There are statutes that basically um, don't say apply de novo review, correct? Yes. And there are statutes that uh, require deferential review explicitly to legal questions, correct? Yes. Besides Chevron? Yes. All right. So now we have, we're now at 706. And, um, um, Mike, your adversary, your opposing counsel, said that he didn't see 
that much disruption from overruling Chevron, that nobody would really bring up those old cases. Um, Do you have a view on that? I think that, my friend, it might be easy for him to say that because he is not going to be involved in the endless litigation that I think would result if this court were to overrule Chevron. I understand his point to be that all of the holdings in those cases will be secure because stare decisis will apply in those contexts. But the important thing to realize is that in those cases, as Justice Barrett's questions emphasized, the court has decided that what the agency did was reasonable. The statute has essentially been interpreted to vest the agency with discretion such that the agency's regulation is being held lawful or valid on the basis of reasonableness. And I think that that means that litigants will come out of the woodwork seeking to open those decisions and contending that they didn't actually address what they now say is the relevant question, not whether the agency's interpretation is reasonable or whether the regulation can be upheld on that basis, but how the statute should be interpreted without granting any deference to the agency's interpretation. Counsel, um, i ask you the same question I asked your friend. Um, you began by saying Chevron is foundational. Uh, we get a lot of statutory interpretations from uh, agencies, uh, and I don't know whether it was 14 or 16 years, we haven't relied on Chevron uh, over that time. I mean, have we overruled it in practice, uh, even if we've let the, had to leave the lower courts to continue to grapple with it? No, I don't think so, Mr. Chief Justice. It's been eight years since this court relied on Chevron at step two, but there's no case that my friends have been able to point to where the court has said that a statute was ambiguous or left a gap and Chevron would otherwise apply, but the court is not going to defer in that circumstance. No, but so I mean, that's, that's simply a function of the fact. And it, it, when, when we go through the work of trying to interpret what a statute means, when we get to the end, that seems to be the right interpretation. Um, I agree. Those are step one holdings. So so I think that they're consistent with the Chevron framework, and the fact that this court hasn't had a step two case in recent years in no way indicates that in those cases where Congress is, in fact, leaving ambiguities or gaps, Chevron no longer sets the right ground rule for understanding the scope of the delegation. Can I ask you about what I see as an internal inconsistency in Chevron itself? It relates to footnote nine, which is uh, instructs that a court should use all the traditional tools of statutory interpretation before getting to step two. My concern about that, or my confusion about that, is if you use all the traditional tools of statutory interpretation, you'll get an answer. And we know that because in cases where we don't have an agency involved and we use those same traditional tools, we get an answer. So how do we deal with footnote nine, which seems to suggest uh, that you'll never get to step two if you follow footnote nine uh, by what it says? So what the court said in footnote 9 is that the court should use all of the traditional tools to ascertain whether Congress had an intent on the issue. And that, of course, is an important part of this framework, because if Congress actually spoke to the issue, then the agency doesn't have any discretion to act in a way that's contrary to Congress's expressed Do you think that's different from ascertaining what the statute means? I think that there can be a relevant difference, and it touches on exactly what you were asking about in the context where a court has to do it without an agency. In that circumstance, I think it's absolutely right that the court is ultimately going to keep working and decide how it thinks the statute should best be administered, even in the circumstance where there might be an ambiguity or a gap to fill. But what Chevron recognizes is that there is a third option available. It's not just Congress spoke to the issue and it necessarily authorized what the agency did 
where Congress spoke to the issue and it prohibited what the agency did, there is a category of cases and statutes out there where really using all of the tools, the best interpretation of the statute is that Congress didn't resolve it. It left that gap or ambiguity and coupled it with this express authorization to the agency to carry that statute into effect. This is Congress and the agencies working together hand in hand to put into effect. How would you define ambiguity or how would you... Uh, if you were a judge, say, yes, this is ambiguous, or no, that's not ambiguous. So I would draw on what the court said recently in Kaiser, where it said a statute is ambiguous when the court has exhausted the tools of interpretation and hasn't found a single right answer. And I recognize, Justice Kavanaugh, and you have expressed these concerns, that there are some limits of language here, and it's not subject to precise mathematical quantification. But that's because I think it's a standard that inherently requires the application of judgment. And at the end of the day, what the court should be looking for and asking itself is, did Congress resolve this one? Do I have confidence that actually I've got it? I I understand what Congress meant to say in this statute, and it meant to prescribe a a uniform approach to stationary source, that it has to be plant-wide or it has to be a particular piece of equipment. But in a circumstance like Chevron itself with stationary source or some of the examples that the justices have been talking about with reasonable or feasible I think you can get to the end of that process and the judge could say, I think actually the way, the right way to understand this statute is that it's conferring discretion on the agency to take a range of permissible approaches. Do you think it's possible for a judge to say the best reading of the statute is X, but I think it is ambiguous and therefore I'm going to defer to the agency, which has uh, offered Y? No, I think that that would probably... That can't happen? I think that happens all the time. Well, I think that there are two different ways in which courts use the term best interpretation of the statute. So if what you're asking me is, is there a world in which a judge could go through the rigorous step one inquiry, apply all of the tools, and say, I think there's a best interpretation insofar as I think Congress spoke to the issue, but the agency's interpretation is, it could be permissible, I recognize there's some doubt here... The answer is no. Chevron does not require a court to ignore what is ascertained doing the step one inquiry. At that point, that is the the judge's conclusion that Congress actually spoke to the issue, and Chevron is totally clear about this. Give effect to it. But if what you're asking me is, is there a, a world in which the court could get to the end of the step one inquiry, decide that Congress hasn't spoken to the issue, and then say... If, in fact, the courts had been given the role of filling the gap, I would have done it differently. I would have exercised whatever discretion that Congress left open in the statute in a different way, even looking to things like the overall objectives in the statutory program as a whole. Then, yes, of course, in that circumstance, it's, it's implementing Congress's directives for well, the court General, to not— I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but those are two different, very different views about what qualifies as an ambiguity you've just given us. One is there is a better interpretation— I provided as a court. The other is, well, yeah, but um, I'm going to defer anyway, given whatever considerations you want to throw into the ambiguity bucket. And that's exactly the problem that your friends on the other side suggest have persisted in the lower courts for 40 years and why some judges claim never to have found an ambiguity and other equally excellent circuit judges have said they find them all the time. And it's also why, I don't know, maybe a dozen or more circuit judges have written asking us to overrule Chevron. Um, and, um, and, 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 it, and it also may be why one of your colleagues last year said, I don't know what ambiguity means at this lectern. And it, should that be a clue that something needs to be fixed here? 
that even the federal government at the podium can't answer the question, what triggers ambiguity? You've given us two different alternatives today, and so many lower court judges who just want to follow whatever we tell them to do faithfully can't figure it out. So there's a lot packed in there, Justice Gorsuch, and I want to respond to each of your concerns. First, I would draw from Chevron and Kaiser in defining what is an ambiguity. It is when a court has applied the tools of construction and can't ascertain that Congress had an intent on the matter. So I think that that is the core question for a court at step one of Chevron, and that's the circumstance that would only ever move a court to applying deference at step two. Now, I understand the concern you expressed, that maybe lower courts are too reflexively finding that there's well, ambiguity. you gave us a second definition just a moment ago. I was trying to, to explain how I thought that sometimes some, in the yes, case law, best under, interpretation yes, is used in two different... Right. I don't think that's a different understanding of Chevron. Well, I think that's really a difference your, your between friend, step one and step two. Your friend a year two. ago thought so, and, and, and lower court judges think so. So let me respond to the concern so about lower court judges. If you think that they are too readily finding ambiguity, I think the court could do in this case exactly what it did in Kaiser. Have we, have we done that like, like 15 times over the last 8 or 10 years? Say, really, 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 go look at all the statutory tools. And yet here we have a case, two cases, one in which one court found ambiguity and went to step two, and another one which, well, I can't tell what it did, but there's a pretty good argument. It, it tried to resolve it at step one. So even in a case involving herring fishermen and the question whether they have to pay for government officials to be on board their boats, which may call for some expertise, but it doesn't have much to do with fishing or fisheries. It has to do with payments of, of, of government costs. We, we, lower court judges, even here in this rather prosaic case, can't figure out what Chevron means. Well, I do think that issuing a reminder to courts about the thoroughness that's necessary at step one could make a difference in this context. And I can just share anecdotally on behalf of the government that we have canvassed the litigating components and looked at the lower court case law. And after Kaiser, lower courts granted our deference far less frequently. So I think it can matter and that lower courts can get that kind of message if you're worried about it. But Justice Gorsuch, the other point to add here is that if you are concerned that lower courts have different reactions in trying to implement Chevron at step one, I think it's important to think about the alternative as well. It's not as though if this court overrules Chevron, that's going to get rid of statutory gaps or ambiguities. No, it, it takes they us back persist. to Skidmore, which Justice Jackson, the most ardent of New Dealers, wrote, and that persisted in this court for 40 years, more or less, after the APA. And the world seemed to continue on its axis just fine. But it's not going to create greater predictability or stability or consistency across judges. That's, anything, that's an I interesting that thing to suggest that Chevron predicts stability when the whole point — I didn't see you mention Brand X much in your brief, but I'm, I'm sorry to go back there, <laughs> but uh, my good friend. Um, but, but Brand X uh, is, is a recipe for instability, isn't it? Because each new administration can come in and undo the work of it, prior one, they're all reasonable. I mean, my goodness, the American people elect them. Of course, they're reasonable people. And, <laughs> and it may be the first falsehood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there we are. And so you never have stability in the law. I mean, if reliance and stability count, I would have thought that Chevron, at least as this court's understood it, is a recipe for 
anti-reliance. So I disagree with that characterization about Brand X, and I think my friends um, have created, kicked up some dust about exactly what Brand X does so you do and en- doesn't do. you do endorse Brand X, the government does? Yes, I think it is a logical follow-on of Chevron, and here is why. As Brand X itself recognizes, if the court has found at step one that Congress spoke to the issue, there's no room under Brand X for the agency to reverse the court or somehow change the underlying meaning of the statute. Instead, the statute has been interpreted at step one, and what Congress says goes. It's only in the category of step two cases where brand X comes into play. And in that circumstance, it's because the court in the prior case has understood the statute to leave a gap or an ambiguity for the agency to fill, considering a range of regulatory approaches. So in that circumstance, too, the meaning of the statute doesn't change. It remains a gap for the agency to fill at time two. And if the agency is running through all of the procedural hoops, which can be quite burdensome in this context, to change its regulatory approach, it is still acting consistently. Or not. Or not if it it issues an interpretive rule without notice and comment or issues an adjudication. It may or may not be that burdensome, right? So Brand X also says that an agency can overturn a prior judicial interpretation. And I I saw that as a circuit judge with respect to an alien who was allowed into the country under the Tenth Circuit's understanding of the law. And the government come back and says, no, you have to overturn your precedent, Tenth Circuit. And he's not allowed in the country. And we had to overrule our judicial precedent. Do you think that's an appropriate understanding of the law, too, that judicial precedents, maybe even precedents of this court, can be overturned by agencies? It depends on what the judicial precedent held. If it held at step one that that statute was clear, then of course not. But Brand X doesn't require that result. If the prior precedent held that Congress didn't resolve the issue and it delegated to the agency the responsibility and role in administering it and filling the gap, including with the possibility of changing regulatory approaches based on things like... The reality, just to pick up on that, the reality is you you say don't uh, overrule Chevron because it would be a shock to the system. But the reality of how this works is Chevron itself ushers in shocks to the system every four or eight years when a new administration comes in, whether it's communications law or securities law or competition law or environmental law, and goes from pillar to post. So like Professor Pierce wrote, and he had been a fan of Chevron. Now he's not because he says it's a source of extreme instability in the law. That's his, his phrase. And it just seems like you just pay attention to what happens when a new administration comes in at EPA, at SEC, at FTC. Uh, you name it. Uh, it's just massive change. That is at war with reliance. That is not stability. And so I think to hold up stability and reliance is a little tough given just watching how it operates every four years. Well, let me give you a couple of different reactions to that. I think that that is a small sliver of cases or circumstances. And in the mine run case involving agency regulations, agencies themselves build on those regulations as a foundation. There's no evidence that agencies are out there flip-flopping left and right or doing so on a whim. And it brings me to the important point that to I don't think they're, I'm sorry to interrupt, I'll let you finish, but I don't think they're doing it on a whim. I think they're doing it because they have disagreement with the policy of the prior administration, and they're using uh, what Chevron gives them and what they can't get through Congress to do it themselves, self-help, and to do it themselves unilaterally, which is completely inconsistent with bicameralism and presentment to get your policy objectives enacted into law. 
But Justice Kavanaugh, the premise I think that's embedded in that question is the idea that Congress had spoken to that issue. And in a circumstance where Congress didn't resolve it, and in fact wanted the agency to have flexibility in a range of options, there's nothing inherently problematic or incompatible with our system of government to recognize that agencies can carry out those directives. And just look at stationary source. You know, that was a circumstance where the court said applying all of the tools Congress didn't have a view on it. It didn't want to foreclose a plant-wide definition. It didn't want to foreclose an equipment-specific definition. And I think it was entirely permissible for the expert agency to come in, take stock of the entire situation, and yes, take account of the policy goals of an incoming administration to better account for the interests of the regulated parties and give them flexibility. That's just part of Congress's design. After all, um, you know, taking into account the policy goals of the new administration uh, reflects a democratic structure where we have the new administration being elected by the people on the basis of certain policy determinations. I guess my concern is I suppose judicial policymaking is very stable, but precisely because we are not accountable to the people and have lifetime appointments. So if we have gaps and ambiguities in statutes and the judiciary is coming in to fill them, um, I suppose we would have a something of a separation of powers or policy, or excuse me, uh, separation of powers concern uh, related to judicial policymaking. Am I wrong to be worried about that? No, I think that that concern is valid, and I think it's valid along two separate dimensions. And one is to recognize that in these scenarios where we're at Chevron step two, by definition, it's because the statute itself doesn't supply an answer and the court can't ascertain that Congress actually meant to resolve it. And in that circumstance, it's entirely sensible for Congress to give the issue to an agency when it is charged with administering the statute and of necessity is going to have to fill the gap along the way. And Congress could quite legitimately want the agency to draw on its policymaking expertise in figuring out the right what way do you, to fill What the do gap. you say to Mr. Martinez, who says we've already characterized that as a question of law because the court was involved at step one in making the determination, and so it seems a little odd. I think I took this away from his presentation to suddenly say when we're in a, te- a step two gap-filling world, now we're going to call it a policy question as opposed to a legal one. So I think you can still characterize it as a legal question while recognizing that in a circumstance, uh, to borrow Justice Kagan's words, where the law has run out and Congress hasn't actually spoken to the issue, the court, if it resolves that issue, is, is going to have to draw on a set of considerations to inform its judgment. And I wouldn't call it policymaking, but I do think it means that the court can't suggest that the answer it is giving is absolutely dictated on that precise issue by Congress, because by definition, we're in a world where Congress didn't speak to it. So the court will have to take account of a narrower range of circumstances, things like the overarching statutory objectives, to try to fill in the gap. But the point is that when Congress has left that gap and charged the expert agency with the administration role, Congress could have every expectation, and Chevron says Congress has the expectation, that the agency will fill the gap and that the courts will respect it within the bounds of reasonableness that always apply in this context. General Prelogger, most scholars of statutory interpretation consider Chevron to be an interpretive canon, much like clear statement rules, rule of lenity, judicially created. Do you see Chevron that way? And if so, do you see it as different and kind from any of the other canons of interpretation that we apply? 
I do think it is different. I don't conceive of it as a canon. Instead, I think that it is fundamentally rooted in in kind of setting the ground rules for how all three branches of the government are operating together. And what I understand the court to have been doing in Chevron is recognizing that there are legitimate reasons why Congress cannot answer every question itself and why it will want to go hand-in-hand with an agency by charging that agency with administering the statute. And in that circumstance, it's the role of the court to give effect to that. So I think it's not just kind of an interpretive canon, but rather it really is grounded in the separation of powers. So is it dependent on a judgment about what Congress would want, one that would have to be empirically tested? So I don't think that it's getting into Congress's subjective intent, although certainly I think the primary rationale that Chevron gave was its appraisal that this is, as an overarching matter, what Congress would have intended when it comes to gaps. And I don't mean to suggest that this means that Congress thinks about each and every gap it's creating in the moment. Sometimes I think it does, and it's clear when it says set reasonable rates, it knows that it's not itself prescribing what those rates will be in concrete circumstances. It's leaving gaps, and the agency has to fill it. But I think even in the circumstance where Congress doesn't know it's creating it at the time, someone's going to have to come in after the fact and fill it in. And it's either going to be the agency or it's going to be the court without deference. And in that circumstance, I think the court appropriately recognized Congress would want for the agency to do it. And how do we know, this is, goes back to that question of what is the trigger of ambiguity that Justice oh. Gorsuch was asking you. So think about a concrete example like Pulsifer, which the United States is on the other side, pending before the court, turning on what and joins together. We think that one's clear. <laughs> Put it out there. So let's let's put aside the question of whether you know the Department of Justice and the executive can gets deference in interpreting criminal statutes. Just erase that issue from the picture. Is that the kind of question? You know, judges below, very smart, very reasonable judges, reached different conclusions about what that word in the statute meant. Is that the kind of question then? You know, thinking about Brandex saying, well, it doesn't have to be the best. It just has to be, you know, a plausible, reasonable one. Is that the kind of statutory question that would trigger ambiguity in step two deference? So I think it's hard to speak um, in generalities about this, and I am struggling because, of course, the court has recognized that the the Department of Justice does not get deference in the criminal context. So with respect to that particular issue... And it's that statutory structure in a a communication. Right. But I guess what I would say to just try to address the overarching question is that, you know, I think that it's going to be kind of a specific exercise in every case. And I can't say, here is the formula I can give you to know when the statutory interpretation exercise at step one runs out and the court should feel like, I don't have an answer, Congress didn't supply one, and when not, I think it's going to vary based on the statutory scheme. But in each case, the court should conduct that inquiry, make it a thorough inquiry, and take account of all of the relevant aspects of interpretation that can bear on meaning and show that Congress, in fact, did resolve it. That is the role of the court, and it's the role of the court, likewise, to enforce Congress's directions. So that when kind the- of question, putting aside the government's position in Pulse of Versa, maybe that's yeah. an unfair question to ask you, but that kind of question you think would be the kind of question that could, you know, uh, let's take it outside of what does the word and mean? You know, a question of statutory structure, the placement of a comma, you know, that kind of a thing. That is the kind of question that, depending on the circumstance, could trigger step two deference. 
I think it conceivably could. Now, I want to hold open and acknowledge that the court has said there are certain types of statutory questions that don't fit within the Chevron framework because there are kind of statute-specific reasons to think Congress wasn't giving this question to the agency. I think the major questions doctrine is a species of that. I'd point to the Adams Fruit case as well, where it was a judicial review provision, and the court said this wasn't something for the agency to do. Um, But I think in the mine run case, yes, and and to the extent you're saying, well, it feels odd for it to depend on a comma or to turn on the meaning of the word and, still I think the inference holds because in that context, Congress, if it in fact has left the ambiguity or the gap, recognizes that the agency is going to have to come up with an answer as part of implementing Except a lot of times Congress doesn't intentionally leave the ambiguity or the gap, right? It's just limits of language, limits of foresight. Yes, and I think, uh, so I think a court ultimately, if it's able to ascertain that although it's not perfectly clear in the statute, you can figure out what Congress intended, give effect to that, that's step one. At least Congress knows that if it's going to unintentionally create ambiguities or gaps, Chevron is the stable background rule. It's been the rule for 40 years. This court acknowledged in the city of Arlington that Congress, in fact, legislates against the background of that rule. And so it knows that with anything it's doing that's unintentional, that will trigger can deference I, can if I the you about are your, satisfied. I'm sorry. Uh, can I ask you about the phrase, law runs out? Uh, one way to think about that would be if you had the same statutory interpret. Go ahead and finish. Sure. Same statutory interpretation issue in a um, non-agency case, could the court decide it? And if the answer is yes, the court could decide it, then the law hasn't run out. So therefore, you could ask yourself that question in an agency case. If this were a non-agency case, would we come to an answer on this case? And if so, you don't go to step two. What's wrong with that? And if that's not correct, because I don't think you're going to agree with that, uh, how, how would you define when the law runs out short of that, which I think is a problem, as you said, hard to speak in generalities about this. That's the problem. Yes. So you predicted my answer. I don't agree that it's only in a circumstance where the statute would be incapable of the court issuing a decision at the end of the day. Of course, if a case comes to the court and it has to resolve it, it's going to have to do its level best. But what I meant by the law running out is that if the court has walked through all of the tools of construction and interpretation and doesn't think that Congress actually directly spoke to this issue, Congress itself didn't resolve it, then the kinds of tools the court is going to have to use will be ones that sound in things like the overarching statutory objectives that Congress revealed as part of its plan. And I think that in a a Chevron circumstance, the insight of the court's opinion there was that the court doesn't have to go on and itself supply the answer when actually the best way to understand Congress having not resolved it itself was to make the primary decision maker or the, the person with the primary role in the first instance to be the agency. Thank, Thank you, you, Counsel. Uh, Justice Thomas, anything further? Uh, just uh, a couple of questions. You said that um, in an exchange with uh, Justice Sotomayor and me that uh, Congress could uh, — require some deference uh, when it came to questions of uh, statutory interpretation. Uh, and th- in 706, it, it, uh, the reviewing court shall decide all relevant questions of law, interpret constitutional and statutory provisions, etc. Uh, could Congress also require deference uh, on the part of the court with respect to constitutional issues? So I think that that would raise distinct issues in light of the different history that would 
be in play in that kind of hypothetical. There has not been a longstanding history of courts deferring to agencies when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. So I think there could be a unique Article Three interest at stake there. But the the history runs in precisely the opposite direction when it comes to statutory interpretation, where agencies themselves are charged with administering it. Because as we've tried to explain, Chevron was not an innovation. It was not something new. These principles of deference go all the way back to the, the very founding years of the Republic. They're reflected in things like mandamus practice, where virtually all executive action for the first hundred years of our nation's history was reviewed deferentially, and then it was continued in a long line of cases from this court, recognizing specifically that in a circumstance when you have the executive administering the statute, Congress could delegate and could expect for those delegations to be respected. I think mandamus is a little bit different um, uh, and the other extraordinary writs in that they that you had a, quite a high hurdle before they became applicable. But back to we normally say that this court reviews questions of law de novo, and that includes uh, statutory and uh, constitutional. How would you distinguish that normal practice from what you're saying? Well, I think it is more nuanced than that. I certainly take the point that the court reviews many legal questions de novo, but that's not invariably the case. There can be issues that arise under distinct statutes that set forth more deferential standards of review. EDPA is a good example of that. Uh, There can be circumstances like mandamus, where the nature of the action itself dictates a more deferential standard of review. And I just don't think it would be accurate to say, as a uniform across-the-board matter, de novo is the standard that always and invariably applies. That's inconsistent with cases from this court that were cited in Chevron going back to the early 1800s, things like Edwards Lessee versus Darby, where the court itself was recognizing that in a variety of contexts where you have ambiguity in particular and you have an expert agency charged with administering the statute, deference can be warranted. Thank you. Justice Alito? Can you provide a concise definition of what ambiguity means in this context? Ambiguity exists when the court has exhausted the tools of interpretation and hasn't been able to arrive at confidence that there is a right answer, that Congress spoke to the issue. Well, uh, as Justice Kavanaugh's recent question presented, in cases that don't involve an agency, We never say we have exhausted all of our tools of interpretation and we just can't figure out what this means. So that would seem to suggest you never get to step two. But the relevant question at step one is whether Congress is in fact resolving it or delegating it to the agency. So I agree that in a circumstance where you don't have an agency, the court can't give effect to any delegation and instead the backup option uh, in a situation where an agency would otherwise be available is the court has to do it. But I don't think that that undermines the very real on-the-ground possibility that Congress is legislating and meaning to give the agency the gap. And and think about a term like reasonable. I come back to the question of your definition of ambiguity. And what I heard you say the first time was it's when we've used up all our tools and we can't figure out what it means, then it's ambiguous. So do you want to provide an alternative definition? So I think maybe the best way to try to clarify what the definition I'm trying to give is to use an example of something like a statutory no, I really like would just like a definition so that all the courts that have to apply the regime that you are advocating will be able to apply it in the many different cases that come before them. The court gave this definition in Kaiser. 
five years ago with respect to our deference, and I think it's the right definition to use and here what as is well. It? What is it? When a court has used or exhausted the tools of interpretation and doesn't believe that it reveals a right answer. In that circumstance, Chevron said the right way to think about that statute, the but real I, I right answer you, there is again, a delegation. I, I think you've, you're running into the problem that we never do that in cases that don't involve an agency. Because in those cases... So I think cases, you've got to provide a different, a different definition. Now, what I heard you say at a couple, of time, a couple of times during your argument was it's when we can't figure out, when, when we don't, when we can't figure out what Congress intended. Is, is that what you mean to say? That is the inquiry that Chevron prescribes that you should be, and this is drawn from footnote nine, which is another formulation of this. Use the tools of interpretation to see if they reveal But what do you mean by what Congress intended? You mean, uh, you mean to say that you get to uh, step two whenever we don't think that a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate had an intent on the specific question that is before the court, then you'd always get to step two. No. So I don't think it's about individual legislators' intent. I think the court in Chevron used the word Congress, but you're really looking at the statute and what the statute reveals about whether it's resolving an issue or not. Thank you. Justice Sotomayor? Hasn't been... um uh, much discussion on why this is entitled to statutory to stare decisis consideration. There's been an argument by opposing uh, petitioners that uh, it's not because it's not really a holding of a case. It's a method only, and we have said in the past that a method that lower courts have to use um, is subject to change in uh, change we can make without considering stare decisis. So could you address that argument? Yes, and I think that petitioners have pointed to two um, relevant types of cases that they suggest just means stare decisis doesn't apply here or it applies in particularly weakened form. First, they say the court has sometimes changed the interpretive tools. It consults things like legislative history might have been in greater favor, at least with some justices before, and maybe have fallen out of favor later. But I don't think that those provide a parallel at all because the court has never distilled those kinds of interpretive tools into a governing framework. It's never, for example, dictated to lower courts, you should be applying legislative history in all cases. And so I don't think that it has the same kind of roots in the type of binding governing framework that Chevron has, which really has functioned in quite a different way with respect to how you understand and implement Congress's directives. The second case they've pointed to is Pearson, which held in the context of the Saucier rule that that was entitled to weaken stare decisis. But there the court said that is entirely a rule of internal judicial management about how courts decide issues and sequence their decision-making process. It doesn't have outward-looking consequences, and it would be foolish to require Congress to step in to fix it. There, too, I think that the considerations run in precisely the opposite direction here, because Chevron is not just a a binding framework about how courts conduct their business. It also gives notice to the legislature about how its statutes will be construed. And if the court got this wrong when Chevron was decided and was wrong about legislative intent, Congress is there at the ready and is perhaps the best part or institution in government to be able to correct it and actually say going forward what it wants the ground rules to be. And the final thing I would say, Justice Sotomayor, is that these were precisely the kinds of considerations that court took into account in Kaiser in applying the strongest form of stare decisis to our deference. My friends have largely ignored Kaiser's analysis on this. This was the majority of the court where the court said, 
Congress can step in. These deference decisions are balls that are lobbed into Congress's courts, and there are big reliance interests at stake here because there are dozens in that case, here thousands of decisions that could stand to be displaced and create chaos if Chevron is overruled. So I think that from a stare decisis perspective, that precedent counts as precedent too. There, and you answered the reliance question because one of the arguments on the other side is no one has, well, the first argument that uh, the court hasn't applied Chevron in how many years, and so um, nobody should have a legitimate reliance interest. And the second argument against reliance is that no one should have reliance on a wrong interpretation, basically. Yes, and I think that those kinds of arguments are inconsistent with Kaiser and also inconsistent with what we know about what happens in the real world. You know, there are agency regulations out there that have been on the books for decades. People have made investment decisions on the basis of that. People have decided what contracts to enter into on the basis of that. States in cooperative federalism programs have designed and invested the resources into their share of that program. And all of that could be thrown into disarray if now it can be subject to renewed challenge on the basis of that regulation was upheld using the wrong, answering the wrong question, not looking at whether it conflicts with some purportedly better interpretation of the statute. Thank you. Justice Kagan? Uh, There's been a fair bit of talk, General, about how because you don't have a formula for saying when there's a gap or ambiguity so that uh, you go to step two, uh, or because judges may have different um, tendencies, you know, which might be temperamental as much as anything else, to find ambiguity. Because of that, there's going to be some variability. And it's hard to argue that there will be some variability. But could you talk about the variability in the alternative scenario? Yes, and and I think that this is a really important point to focus on, because as I was trying to say earlier, in a world without Chevron, it's not as though Congress is always going to speak clearly and it won't leave gaps or ambiguities in statutes. Genuine ambiguities where you apply the tools and at the end you are left with no certainty about what Congress was trying to do. And in that circumstance, in a world without Chevron, what we'll see is what Justice Alito was suggesting. The courts will have to go on and try to answer the question, but there are 800 district court judges around the nation, and I think it's fair to say they will likely have different takes about what to do in that circumstance and what to give greater weight to and how to ultimately fill the gap in administering the statute. And that's going to create problems for a couple of different reasons. And those differences, to go back to Justice Alito's earlier question, I mean, those differences were part of the impetus for Chevron because those differences were looking awfully ideological in nature, awfully partisan in nature. And Chevron, all the empirical evidence suggests dampens that kind of ideological division between courts. That's right. There is good empirical evidence to support that judges have an easier time reaching common ground under the Chevron framework and at least identifying when they can agree that Congress did not itself resolve an issue than they do when they have to ultimately go on and try to figure out what they're going to say is the bottom line of the best way to put the statute into operation. So I think that that is rooted in Chevron, and it just reflects as well this uniformity concern. One of the basic justifications for Chevron and one of the reasons why this inference of legislative intent is sound 
ground, because agencies can provide that kind of uniform rule for the nation, subject to the ground rules, of course, of judicial review under Chevron. But I think that the alternative world where there's no Chevron is that there will open up wide disputes among the lower courts, maybe on these mine-run statutory interpretation questions in complex programs, things like Medicare and Medicaid. And I think that it could mean that regulated parties are subject to different rules in different parts of the country. You lose the uniformity value, and it diminishes the force of the political accountability value. So I think Congress would have very good reason to think that agencies should do this and that courts should respect it within the bounds of reasonableness. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Um, You agree that courts under the APA have to review questions of law involving the Constitution de novo? Yes, I think there might be certain circumstances with respect to certain provisions where more deferential standards apply. But But I certainly agree they don't defer to agencies. And and, and you agree that elsewhere in the law, when posed with questions of law, courts review those de novo, generally speaking? I think that in many contexts it's de novo, certainly not in all contexts. The examples you gave, I think, were EDPA and mandamus, right? Yes, I think those are two good examples of situations where there are specifications of a standard of review that's more deferential. I wonder whether, though, those have more to do with remedies, right? In a mandamus case, a court should say or can say what the law is. It just can't provide relief unless its conviction about the statute meaning is sufficiently clear. Same thing in EDPA, that we require a heightened standard before relief is granted. Same thing in sovereign immunity context. We may think the statute says the government's liable, but we impose a higher standard before we grant access to the FISC. So I acknowledge that I think that many of those doctrines do turn on limitations built into the writ or limitations on remedies. I don't think it would be right, Justice Gorsuch, to say that in the mandamus cases, what courts were traditionally doing is saying, let me put aside what the executive officer did and just interpret the statute de novo and say what I think the right answer is. And the right answer is the executive was violating the law, but not clearly outside the scope of the executive's authority. But he could do so, as just as we do in the qualified immunity context. There are two steps to that analysis. You can just go to the second one and resolve it and say, yeah, it's not clear, so I can't provide a remedy. But I think for petitioners to succeed on their Article Three argument, they have to show not just that you I'm not can asking about Article, de novo, I'm, I'm not asking about Article to. Three. I'm just asking about the APA and what it means. And yeah. Oh, okay. So sorry if I misunderstood. I, I do think, though, that what the history shows at the very least is there has been no fundamental rule in this country leading up to the APA's enactment that you have to review all questions de novo. And that's where the history of the APA really matters. This court has several times recognized the APA was a restatement of existing judicial practice when it came to review of agency statutory interpretations. And as we've explained, there are really deep roots here, a long line of precedent in history showing that courts will sometimes defer. So yeah, I think you, on, on, those, on those, it's, it's absolutely true. You, you, you do point out cases like Edwards, Lessee, others where this court gave respect to the federal government's contemporaneous and uniform interpretation of the statute. And that's exactly what Skidmore does. It gives respect to contemporaneous and uniform interpretations. But Chevron doesn't matter whether it's contemporaneous and uniform. It could be novel and out of the blue and inconsistent with everything that came before, and it still gets deference. 
So right? I, I disagree with the idea that those cases stand for the more limited principle that's... Well, I'm, that's, I'm reading from them, but okay, all right. Well, so there, are, there are dozens of them, so I acknowledge that they use varying formulations, and maybe you can find some that look a little more like Skidmore. I think I have a lot that look a whole lot like Chevron. Let's say you don't. Then what? Well, I think I, I just have to dispute the premise. No, look no, at Gray versus Powell. Look at NLRB versus yeah. Hearst Publications. Yeah. You know, I think that these are these are cases in the 1940s that were leading cases in administrative oh, I, law. I wasn't. I was. I, I put aside the, what happened in the 40s because it went back and forth and wound up in Skidmore. Um, but at the but, very but, least, but, Justice but, Gorsuch, but you want to no... say it's a very old thing, and the old cases don't look anything like. Chevron. They look a lot like Skidmore. I, I disagree with that. Some of them say okay. you should give it controlling weight. It should tip the balance. They're not saying just pay attention to it if maybe it has the chance of persuading If, 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 if it's contemporaneous and if it's uniform. No, but, not all of the cases okay. pay attention to that fact. Okay. Some of them right, recite I'll, that, I'll but others again. don't. That's fine. And I, I just want to add as I, well. I have another question, though. Um, Chevron, you emphasize, is, is value neutral, and it'll sometimes favor industries that are regulated and sometimes favor the government. And I can certainly see that in, in scenarios where we talk about the flip-flop of administrations, and um, new people leave, come in and replace others, and, and um, there's a lot of movement from industry in and out of those agencies. Uh, I think George Stigler talked about regulatory capture. And I don't worry in a Chevron regime about those people. They can take care of themselves. Okay, there is political accountability. Fine. The cases I saw routinely on the courts of appeals, and I think this is what niggles at so many of the lower court judges, are the immigrant, the veteran seeking his benefits, the Social Security disability applicant, who have no power to influence agencies will never capture them, and whose interests are not the sorts of things on which people vote, generally speaking. And there, Chevron is almost always, and in fact, I, I didn't see a case cited, and perhaps I missed one, where Chevron wound up benefiting those kinds of peoples. And it seems to me that it's arguable, and certainly the other side makes this argument powerfully, that Chevron has this disparate impact on different classes of persons. And I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that. Sure. And I have a couple of different reactions to that. Um, you know, one is to say that I, of course, acknowledge that the way that Chevron operates, it gives effect to agency interpretations, even in circumstances where that might be oppositional, some of the categories of individuals that you're identifying. But if it does that, it does that in accordance with Congress's intent and wishes, because even my friend agrees that there are certain delegations that Congress can make to agencies and, and certain gap filling that agencies can do, at least with the broad and capacious terms. And at that point, it's just putting into effect what Congress decided. So I don't think that there is any kind of fundamental flaw in giving effect to Congress's statutes well, But the, left open the possibility that a judge, if left to his own devices, would say the fairest ruling is in favor of the immigrant, it's in favor of the veteran, and it's in favor of the Social Security disability applicant. But because of a fictionalized statement about what Congress wanted when it didn't think about the problem, the government always wins. 
Well, I think there are a couple of different ways to come at that concern. One is to emphasize, again, that if it's not just that in the exercise of discretion, the court would think something is fairer and fill the gap that way, but rather the court thinks, actually, the reason it's fairer is because I have a, a, a sense that Congress spoke to this. I can determine it based on all of the tools. You can no, resolve we, that at but, step but one. But that doesn't work, though, because you've said that it doesn't matter whether Congress actually thought about it. And that, yes. and that so, there are many instances where Congress didn't think about it. And in every one of those, Chevron is exploited against the individual and in favor of the government. I don't think it's fair to treat that as an exploitation. Congress has been aware of the rules here. It could change Chevron at any time. It could displace it if it thinks that it's being used in these circumstances where it's not warranted. Justice Kavanaugh? A few questions. Uh, I think the other side's argument suggests that the basic analytical concern at the heart of Chevron is that it treats law as policy and that that's antithetical to our constitutional structure and the rule of law. And that's why the footnote 9 question is so important, I think, because if you use the traditional tools in a non-agency case and got an answer, that suggests it's a statutory interpretation question. And you're saying no, you can stop short of that in an agency case at some difficult-to-define point and then treat the rest of the case as a, as a policy call for the executive branch. And that's treating what was a law question in a non-agency case as a policy question in an agency case, and it's the same question. So it's tr- transforming law into policy. And that's very um, difficult, I think, to um, accept if you accept the idea that a premise of the rule of law is that the executive and the judiciary can't just treat the laws passed by Congress as mere expressions of policy that they can change. Respond to that. So I hear that concern, and I think the way to address that concern is to reinforce the principle in footnote 9. We agree that that's an important principle, and to the extent that there are agencies out there or lower courts out there that are uh, effectively not giving the, the effect to Congress's own enactments, then a court can police that, and it can put into effect the footnote 9 principle in a robust way with a rigorous analysis. That's the kind of instruction the court gave in Kaiser. And Justice Kavanaugh, I think it's not a a different question in the agency context and in the non-agency context. What I understand Chevron to be doing is telling the court, in the first instance, figure out if Congress spoke to this issue, and if so, implement it. But hold open the possibility that Congress didn't speak to the issue. And in that context, if Congress has given the agency this primary, critically important role to administer the statute, that should merit deference if the agency still stays within the bounds that Congress set. In a non-agency case, you don't have the agency to rely on, but you might still end up at the end of the interpretive process thinking Congress didn't precisely speak to this issue, but what is the best I can do to figure out how Congress would have resolved it or what is the interpretation most consistent with the overall statutory scheme here, the right way to resolve this case? Congress, in fact, would know that courts are going to have to do that in a context without an agency, and so it's still following the terms of the statute. But I think it would be a fiction to suggest that what the court is doing there is just following Congress's explicit directions on the matter. That's at war um, with the idea that there is genuine ambiguity sometimes. And I think it's important to distinguish, and I think you would distinguish, statutes that involve legal questions of statutory interpretation. And then there are tons of statutes, uh, to go back to the AI example, uh, that 
explicitly confer broad policy discretion on agencies. Yes. And that's where State Farm kicks in, and that's where we've always been deferential. Yes, And you acknowledge those are two different kinds of statutes. A statute that says, for example, uh, one statute might say, no, no one can catch more than 50 fish today. The next statute may say the agency can define what a reasonable number of fish that can be caught in a particular day. That second statute is conferring broad policy discretion to define the limit on the agency. You agree those are distinct? Well, I I think that one is obviously a clearer bestowal of discretion on the agency, but I think it just shows that Congress can legislate in a variety of ways. And if you think about some of these examples... Can I just stop you right there? So you agree Congress can legislate broad policy discretion uh, to an agency, can can grant broad policy discretion explicitly through (laughs) words like reasonable, appropriate... Yes, absolutely. And I think that the same question of what does the court do without the agency can sometimes come up in those contexts. If Congress has said, to to borrow from the Chief Justice's example, reasonable truck lengths, and, you know, there isn't an agency interpretation of that, the court's going to have to do its best. But I understood my friend to concede. That is actually meaning to create a zone of discretion for the agency to operate within. That's a state farm question, as I would see it. Okay, two more questions, uh, because I want to make sure the concerns of the other side get aired and you have a chance to respond. So there's um, some discussion of this would be taking power from the executive and granting it to the judiciary. I guess a different conception of this, of Chevron, is that it's taken power from Congress and shifted it to the executive and allowed the executive, in essence, to unilaterally make policy uh, without uh, Congress. And Um, One of the concerns, historically, from the beginning of this country was unchecked executive power. And you hear presidents criticized all the time, whether it's, you know, Roosevelt or Reagan or Bush or Obama, are criticized for exercising unchecked uh, power. So the concern is about Chevron and us ushering in aggressive assertions of unilateral executive power. And that's the concern that uh, I think the other side has, not about the judiciary taking power, but the judiciary having taken it from Congress and shifted it to the executive, contrary to our usual concerns. So I disagree with their characterization that Chevron permits the executive to claim power away from Congress, and Congress is powerless to do anything about that. Um, You know, in the first instance, of course, Congress has to make the delegation to the agency, and the court can enforce that. And so Congress knows, as this court has said in City of Arlington, to speak capaciously when it wants to bestow discretion, to speak plainly when it wants to rein an agency in and resolve an issue itself. And also, Congress can change the rules of deference that apply in any context. There have been particular statutory schemes where Congress has said, deference doesn't exist in this context, um, don't apply it, or defer to this agency and not this other agency. So so Congress is really in the driver's seat here. Well, most... This is a technical point. Most presidents would veto a bill getting rid of Chevron deference, and so, but that's a technical point. But last, last, uh, last question, um, which is uh, there was talk about democratically elected political branches, but I th- just want to get your agreement on something that I think you'll agree on, which is the role of the judiciary historically under the Constitution to police the line between the legislature and the executive to make sure that the executive is not operating as a king, not operating outside the bounds of the authority granted to them by the legislature. you agree that's uh, a, 
proper judicial role, I would assume. I, of course, agree with that, but I think Chevron is consistent with that. The court polices the executive at step one by ensuring that Congress's own choices are put into operation, and it further polices the executive at step two. As the court said in Kaiser, reasonableness is a test that agencies can fail, and so there's work to be done done there, too, to make sure the agency doesn't transgress some outer bound or line that Congress set. Thank you very much. Justice Barrett, Justice Jackson. So um, just picking up where Justice Kavanaugh left off, um, doesn't the court have to not only police the other branches but itself as well? And by that I mean um, to the extent that the other side raises the concern that, uh, you know, uh, they're treating law as policy, um, isn't there a concern that policy questions might be treated as law? and that what Chevron is doing is also helping the court to police its own determinations in that regard. Yes, and I think a way to illustrate this is to think about a delegation like the deceptive practices as defined by the secretary. If there were a statute that said that, of course a court couldn't come in and say, well, the secretary has said what's a deceptive practice, but I I think that actually there's a better way to think about the concept of what is deceptive, and therefore I'm going to override what the agency has done or not give any weight to it. Congress has directed there that what you should do as a court is pay attention to what the secretary did because the secretary was given that role in administration. Obviously, Chevron applies to circumstances where that delegation is not quite as explicit, but it's meant to identify the same basic idea where I think the court's role then is to give effect but to what Congress But why isn't the answer what, what the other side says, which is really make Congress say that? In other words, you know, it seems to me their argument is when we're policing this line between what is law and what is policy, we should require Congress to say the secretary gets to make this decision, and when it doesn't, then I guess we look at it as a legal question and that the courts can decide. So I think that that argument would have more merit if there weren't so much water under the bridge and the fact that the court explained when it would identify this kind of delegation 40 years ago. And, you know, petitioners talked about the reliance interests here and tried to diminish them. They didn't talk about Congress's own reliance interests in enacting statutes against the backdrop of Chevron. So I think at this juncture, to say we're actually going to switch the default and make Congress say discretion is conferred would be really to run to the detriment of Congress's own reasonable expectations with respect to drafting. And I think it also doesn't account for the category of cases where the language that Congress is using is infused with discretion. They agreed terms like reasonable, appropriate, necessary. Those are terms that require uh, greater application to concrete factual settings to fill in the details. And you can't just interpret those terms in a vacuum. So I don't understand how this idea of just making Congress say it uh, could function in that kind of world. And then the final thing is Congress has said something very important here, which is the agency shall administer the statute with regulations or adjudications that have the force of law. That is part of the statute as well. And And you think that that really carries a lot. I've heard you use that and focus on that many times when you're talking about a situation in which deference is or should be required. Exactly. So Congress in each and every statute where this is going to be applicable, where Chevron deference will even be available, is going to have to have made that judgment in the statute to give the agency that responsibility and role in implementing the statute. And let me just ask you about whether or not, going to the issue of ambiguity, which has come up many times, whether or not the court could clarify um, when there is a gap or ambiguity that allows for or requires the court to, to, to go to step two. And what I'm thinking about 
is what I mentioned uh, previously with um, uh, your friend on the other side, which is that some scholars have actually identified different kinds of ambiguity. So in one scenario, we have a statute that uses a broad term, and that term encompasses a range of reasonable meanings. There are three or four different ways that could be reasonably, um, uh, you know, the meaning of stationary source, for example. Um, But then there's also the kind of ambiguity in which a statute can mean only one thing, either A or B, perhaps because of the way the the language, uh, uh, you know, is put forward in the statute. It's just unclear whether it means A or B. Um, I take these scholars to mean that really in the former scenario is the one in which we have a situation in, uh, you know, where Chevron deference would be required. And could the court say something like that? And let me just clarify. I mean, Chevron, I look at it as that's reducing to a policy choice, that once we are in the world of finding the kind of ambiguity where there are a number of reasonable alternatives in terms of making this determination, then, you know, it's just going to be a policy choice as to which one, you know, Congress Congress wanted in some sense or which uh, entity Congress wanted to make that decision. So I, I think that there certainly this court could provide more guidance to lower courts and in particular identify the types of statutory issues that might clearly connote discretion. There are going to be some easy calls on this and the types of situations where there might be multiple possible ways to implement in play that will signal that there really is a zone of discretion and the agency should have some flexibility. My only concern with going down the road of saying there's some fundamental difference with respect to particular terms that might be subject to only two possible ways to be implemented is that, you know, there are kind of an endless number of statutes out there in all kinds of varieties, and I worry that it might lose sight of certain contexts where Congress actually was comfortable with either way of implementing that particular term, even if there are only two possibilities, and did in fact delegate that issue to the agency. So I wouldn't want some kind of, you know, bright line rule to diminish the court's ability to recognize and implement that kind of delegation. Thank you. Thank you, General. Uh, Mr. Martinez, rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a few points in rebuttal. Uh, first of all, I think it's really important to be very clear about what Chevron does. It takes the power to say that the law, what the law means, to say that the law means X, and it takes that power away from courts and it gives it to agencies. And it then forces agencies, uh, forces courts to adjudicate the rights of it- individual litigants that are in front of them based on a version of the law that the courts themselves do not believe is correct, do not believe is the best interpretation. Neither Congress nor this court can create a doctrine or legislate a statute that that effectuates that reallocation of interpretive authority. My friend uh, on the other side said that the purpose of Chevron is to set the ground rules on how the the different branches of government should operate. With respect, I think the Constitution sets those ground rules, and the Constitution makes clear that the judicial power, the power to say what the law is, the power to interpret the law, rests with courts, not with agencies, and, and certainly not with Congress either. And I think the APA reinforces that. Um, the Solicitor General tries to, to rescue or reconceptualize Chevron by, I think, taking issue with our argument that under Chevron, if the court thinks the best interpretation is X, it sometimes is going to have to apply Y because the agency told it to. I think if you look at footnote 11 of Chevron, 
that is exactly what Chevron itself says. It, it tells the agency, the court, that it has to apply, apply an interpretation that the court itself would not choose. In other words, an interpretation that the court itself does not think is best. The Solicitor General also um, describes Chevron as applying, and, and the formulation that I heard a lot today is, it applies if the agency didn't resolve the question which is a kind of innocuous phrasing, but what is really meant by that is that Chevron applies in cases of ambiguity, and ambiguity has always been understood as uh, a situation where reasonable people can disagree about what the law means. And that just broadens the scope of deference. Ambiguities are all over the place. Courts resolve ambiguities all the time. That's core to the interpretive function. And so there's no reason to think that just because Congress has accidentally left an ambiguity in a statute, that what it's really trying to do is have that ambiguity resolved by policy decisions made by an agency. Uh, Justice Barrett asked about the the justification for Chevron and whether the intent justification is really valid. And I took my friend to, to essentially concede that the delegation is fictional, but nonetheless to say that we should apply it anyway as a presumption. I I don't think that you can get the mileage that you need to get out of the intentional delegation theory after you've conceded it's fictional, because the only reason that intentional delegation theory has weight is if it's actually what Congress wanted to do. And if Congress didn't actually want to delegate it, then we shouldn't be, you know, basing our doctrine, reconceptualizing how we think about statutory interpretation based on this fictional premise. Here, there's really no reason to think that Congress actually wanted to delegate policymaking authority to agencies to resolve ambiguity, any ambiguity that arises in, in any statute administered by the agency. I think the government's sort of solution to that problem is to propose a clear statement requirement on Congress. Hey, you can just legislate more clearly. But ambiguities are, are, are accidental. They're unintentional. And so I don't think that works. I think that would impose a massive clarity tax on Congress that's unjustified. With respect to the history, uh, Your Honor, I think the mandamus uh, precedents make very clear themselves that they're talking about remedies, and those cases like Decatur and Dunlap expressly say that if we were interpreting these uh, these legal uh, issues uh, in a different context where we weren't limited by the limits on mandamus remedies, we would apply our, our best and independent judgment. With respect to the APA, the Solicitor General is looking at text that, that requires courts to interpret statutory p- uh, provisions and, and is saying that that rule, interpret statutory uh, provisions, is consistent with Chevron, which she describes in her brief as allocating interpretive authority to agencies. So the statute says courts do the interpretation. Chevron says agencies get interpretive uh, authority, not courts. These are inconsistent. Chevron's not consistent with the APA. Finally, with respect to the, the course correction idea or the mend it, don't end it approach, I would just respectfully suggest that you've tried to to mend this. You've tried to course correct over and over again over the years. That's why we have a Chevron doctrine that's overladen with a lot of bells and whistles. It's very hard to apply in practice. I think in in, in the real world, if you try to mend it without ending it, what's going to happen is you're going to put a lot of pressure on the major questions doctrine. People are going to be coming to this court every three or four years asking you to adopt a new limitation, a new caveat, a new threshold test. We would respectfully suggest that the solution here is to recognize that the fundamental problem is Chevron itself. Interpretive authority belongs to the courts. If we have the best view of the statute, we should win this case. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in case 22451, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. Mr. Clement. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case well illustrates the real-world cost of Chevron which do not fall exclusively on the chevrons of the world, but injure small businesses and individuals as well. 
Commercial fishing is hard. Space on board vehicle vessels is tight, and margins are tighter still. Therefore, for, the, for, the, for my clients, having to carry federal observers on board is a burden, but having to pay their salaries is a crippling blow. Congress recognized as much by strictly limiting the circumstances in which domestic fishing vessels could be saddled with monitoring costs and capping them at 2 to 3 percent of the value of the catch. But the agency here showed no such restraint, requiring monitoring on 50 percent of the trips at a cost of up to 20 percent of their annual returns. Nonetheless, the court below deferred to the agency because it viewed the statute as silent on the who pays question. There is no justification for giving the tie to the government or conjuring agency authority from silence. Both the APA and constitutional avoidance principles call for de novo review, asking only what's the best reading of the statute. Asking instead, is the statute ambiguous, is fundamentally misguided. The whole point of statutory construction is to bring clarity, not to identify ambiguity. The government defends this practice not as the best reading of the APA, but by invoking stare decisis. That is doubly problematic. First, at issue here is only Chevron's methodology, which is entitled to reduced stare decisis effect. We have no beef with Chevron's Clean Air Act holding, and we could not take issue with its APA holding because it failed to mention that statute. But second, all the traditional stare decisis factors point in favor of overruling Chevron's methodology. The doctrine is unworkable as its critical threshold question of ambiguity is hopelessly ambiguous. It is also a a reliance-destroying doctrine because it facilitates agency flip-flopping. So the reality here is the Chevron two-step has to go and should be replaced with only one question. What is the best reading of the statute? I welcome the Court's questions. Mr. Clement, you uh, heard the government's, uh, the general, uh, general's arguments uh, with respect use of, of mandamus as a basis for uh, sort of uh, de- deference. Uh, could you comment on that? Because my understanding of mandamus is that the duty has to be clear before it uh, actually lies. Uh, but I'd like your comment on that. Absolutely, Justice Thomas. So I think mandamus is a critical recognition of the fact that, of course, Congress can limit the remedies available in particular circumstances, and that's the right way to understand the mandamus standard. But that's quite different from telling the courts that they're to engage in statutory construction, as Congress clearly did in Section 706 of the APA, but then say there's a point at which you can't actually give us your best answer because you're deferring. And I think it's important from a separation of powers to under, purpose to understand that it's not just remedies are different. There's an accountability difference. Because I suppose Congress tomorrow could decide that we're going to go back to a world where the only review of executive branch action is mandamus. But then Congress would be fully responsible for that highly unpopular decision. But So that's the difference, I think, the fundamental difference from a separation of power standpoint between a limitation on remedies, where Congress does it specifically, and essentially telling the courts in the APA specifically, you have the interpretive authority over statutes no less than constitutional issues, but then overlaying a doctrine that says what we're doing is interpretation. And that's the critical thing about the interchange between footnote 9 and footnote 11. Footnote 9 tells you as clearly as you can what you're doing in a Chevron case is statutory interpretation. But then in footnote 11, it says at a certain point, you stop doing statutory interpretation, even though you think there's a better answer, and you defer to a different branch of government. And it's not the branch of government the framers gave the interpretive authority to. 
It's the branch of government that the framers gave the implementing authority. So I think from that standpoint, Chevron is a fundamental, egregiously wrong decision that just gets it wrong on basic separation uh, of powers. There is such a tension in this. Interpretive authority, everybody seems to concede, um, means discretion. It means there's multiple meanings that you can take from something, and someone has to choose among those meanings. Um, it seems like most people agree if the court, if the statute uses reasonable, that Congress is delegating the definition of reasonable to the agency, and the agency is deciding what is reasonable within some outer limit, um, either set within the statute or or within the law. But the point is that I don't. I, it's great rhetoric, Mr. Clement, but. We do delegate. We have recognized delegations to agencies from the beginning of the founding of interpretation. And so I'm I'm at a loss to understand where the argument comes from. Well, let me try to clarify. I think there is a difference between recognizing discretion and recognizing delegation. There are certain statutory terms, as you yourself point out, that, ha- that, that properly construed by the courts definitively would give the agency a realm of discretion in which to operate. But there are other terms in which it is really a binary question. And the problem, the fundamental feeling of Chevron, is it doesn't do a good job of distinguishing between the two. And the best example is Brand X. Broadband communications are either an information service or they are a telecommunication service. It might be hard to figure out which one, but they can't be one on a Tuesday and the next on a oh, Thursday. Oh, wait a minute. It's a that's, binary that's, question. That, it, it may be binary to you, but I do know that with the development of technology and with the development of how that is implemented in terms of transmission and the Internet, that over time that's going to change. But just to sort of and just the, and the same issue, even in the case that we're in right now, there were two areas that Congress looked at and knew that monitors were critical. Okay, foreign sea travel for obvious reasons because there's very little that outside um, once those ships leave that people that the U.S. government can do to them. And the other was the I think it was the North Pacific area. But the point is that that doesn't mean that similar problems didn't arise later and that the broad words giving the secretary the power to monitor and implement measures to ensure that its conservation goals were being followed wasn't given to the agency. Those are the facts that what we should be looking at, in my judgment, is is, are, is this measure commensurate with what drove the similar measure, not identical, in the other two examples. And the agency should have first crack at that. So I disagree. If they're not similar, the court will look at it and say, your decision was arbitrary and capricious. If they are similar, we might say, okay, this is all right. I don't know the answer to that because we really haven't dug into that, but it's just the point I'm making, which is that things change on the ground. So, and a definition you give today may not hold up to new facts. 
So facts do change on the ground. That is part of the problem with Chevron in Brand X. If there's a difficulty in classifying broadband today, the difficulty is that the statute was last passed in 1996. So figuring out whether 2023 broadband is a 1996 information service or a 1996 telecommunication service is a granddaddy of a problem. But it does have a binary answer. It's one or the other. Now, bringing it home to this statute, what I would say is if you do the Chevron ambiguity test, you find a word like appropriate in the statute, or maybe for some people carry, though I think that one's pretty clear, and you say that word is ambiguous. So I'm going to go to step two. That's what the court below did. (laughs) But if you look at the statute as a whole, and if you looked at it the way you would in any other context, I think what you would see is this is a classic case for exclusius, inclusius, forget the exact Latin phrase. But the point is, you have a situation where in the most commercially well-heeled fishery in the country, Congress did two things. It said you may, not must, have monitors paid for by the industry, but you must, if you do that, cap the fees at 2 to 3% of the value of the catch. Now, a Congress that did that with the most well-heeled fishery in the nation, I do not think possibly conveyed the authority to the agency to say, with a much different uh, fishery in the Atlantic, where it's small business people, we're going to let you do effectively the same thing, but we are going to let you do it to the tune of 20% of their annual returns. I think if you strip away Chevron, this is a fairly easy case where you just say, wow, Congress had this question in mind in one place, or actually three places to be specific, and with every domestic fishery, they only gave it in two instances, and in both instances, they said it can be no more than 2 or 3% of the value of the cash. You're just arguing that the statute's not ambiguous on that question. I am arguing that the best reading of the statute is that my client wins. Now, if I have to... Well, but it it seems to me that you're not contemplating the possibility of another reason. And another result. And that may be right. What you're saying is that this is not a case where there can be a number of different interpretations. But I don't think that's coming to grips with the Chevron question. Well, I hope it is, Your Honor, because what I would say is exactly what I heard Justice Kavanaugh saying, which is I don't think there is a different rule of statutory construction in cases where agency is a party, when, in cases when agency is not a party. In both cases, you just can't get to a certain point and say, gosh, this is hard. I think the law has run out. In both cases, you are supposed to take it all the way to coming up with your best answer. Now, if you Well, do- you were just saying, I mean, that the principle of exclusio unius uh, answers uh, the question. Um, and if it answers the question, I, I guess I don't understand how you even get to the Chevron issue. Because Chevron step one, you would give the same answer. Maybe you would, Your Honor, but nobody knows where step two ends and step two begins. And, you know, for, I, I mean, I suppose now taking the hints from Kaiser, which is about our, not Chevron, you would say, well, of course you apply all the standard canons of statutory construction before you get to step two. But, but the point is, in every other case, you apply all those canons, and if you're not sure about the answer, you dust off the back of Scalia and Garner and you see if there aren't some other well, canons. because you have no other option. I mean, what what Chevron is, is it's a recognition that in certain cases you apply all those tools and the conclusion you come up with is Congress hasn't spoken to this issue. And if you had no other option, you're a court, there's a case before you, you try as hard as you can, even though you know you're basically on your own. But with when Chevron comes in, when there is an agency – What Chevron says is now there are two possible decision makers. 
there's the agency and there's the court. And what we think is that Congress would have preferred the agency to resolve this question when congressional direction has cannot be failed because of the agency's expertise, because of the agency's experience, because the agency understands how this question fits within the statutory scheme. So it's not a question of the court couldn't do it. It's a question of once congressional direction can't be found, who does Congress want to do it? So, Justice Kagan, I don't agree with you that the law runs out in those circumstances, even even though there's an agency there. But I will give you this. If I did believe it, I would say, at that point, let's give the tie to the citizen. Let's not give the tie to the agency. And I think it's important. See, I don't think it's like what we would do. You would give the tie to the citizen, and I would give the tie to the agency. Chevron is about what Congress wants. And you can call it fictional or you want, but we have lots of presumptions that operate with respect to statutory interpretation. And this is just one of them. It's just saying Congress understands as well as anybody different institutionals, comparative attributes, and comparative virtues. And it does not want courts making, you can, I mean, it's law, but it's policy-laden judgments once, once Congress's direction can't be found. So, Justice Kagan, if we're going to talk about what Congress wants, we probably should at least avert to the fact that we do have an amicus brief in this case from the House in its institutional capacity. And it doesn't want Chevron. It's on our side of the case. If it doesn't want Chevron, it has total control over Chevron. It can reverse Chevron tomorrow with respect to any particular statute and with respect to statutes generally. And it hasn't. For 40 years, it has acceded to Chevron, except in super rare cases. It has basically said, this is the background rule. It gives us a stable default rule from which to write statutes. And we've accepted that. So let me say three things about that. First of all, I'm not sure everybody in Congress wants to overrule Chevron. because well, everybody really, in Congress doesn't want to do everything. But, no, my point is it's really convenient for some members of Congress not to have to tackle the hard questions and to rely on their friends in the executive branch to get them everything they want. I also think Justice Kavanaugh is right that even if Congress did it, the president would veto it. And I think the third problem is, and, and fundamentally even more problematic, is if you get back to that fundamental premise of Chevron, that when silence or ambiguity. We know the agency wanted to delegate to the agency. That is just fictional, and it's fictional in a particular way, which is it assumes that ambiguity is always a delegation. But ambiguity is not always a delegation. And more often, what ambiguity is, I don't have enough votes in Congress to make it clear. So I'm going to leave it ambiguous. That's how we're going to get over the bicameralism and presentment hurdle. And then we'll give it to my friends in the agency, and they'll take it from here. And that ends up with the phenomenon where we We have major problems in society that aren't being solved because instead of actually doing the hard work of legislation where you have to compromise with the other side at the risk of maybe drawing a primary challenger, you rely on an executive branch friend to do what you want. And it's not hypothetical. When I hear you talk about... You said you end up in gridlock, which we have now. No, what I'm saying is Chevron is a big factor in contributing to gridlock. Let me give you a concrete example. 
I would think that the uniquely 21st century phenomenon of cryptocurrency would have been addressed by Congress. And I certainly would have thought that would have been true in the wake of the FTX debacle. But it hasn't happened. Why hasn't happened? Because there's an agency head out there that thinks that he already has the authority to address this uniquely 21st century problem with a couple of statutes passed in the 1930s. And he's going to wave his wand and he's going to say the words investment contract are ambiguous and that's going to suck all of this into my regulatory ambit, even though that same person, when he was a professor, said this is probably a job for the CFTC. Mr. Clark. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask you to address stare decisis. Let's say, let's, let's assume for the sake of argument that I agree with you that in 706, Congress has spoken to the problem, that we're not applying a fictional presumption, but that Congress has told us, you know, we want courts to decide questions of law. The the Solicitor General in the last argument talked about how litigants will be lining up for cases that were decided under Step 2 to seek to reopen challenges to the agency's interpretation. What do you have to say about the disruptive consequences of overruling? So I think the Solicitor General, with all due respect, will be saying the exact opposite if this court overrules the decision and will be saying, no, you've got to look at it at the right level of generality. What I would say is this court has moved away dramatically from certain methods of interpretation, more dramatically than just we look at legislative history less now than we used to. Implied causes of action, as far as I can tell, are dead. But that didn't mean that every decision that was decided in the bad old days was overruled ipso facto. But that's a little bit different because those implied causes of action, the court was saying this is what the statute means. Like Title IX implies the cause of action or whatever. This would be different because the court would just be saying may not be the best, but the agency's interpretation is reasonable. So it doesn't settle it in the same way that maybe some of those old implied cause of action cases did. If you don't want there to be disruption, all you have to do is make the precise level of generality move that you alluded to, which is, I would think, in every one of these Chevron cases, the question is, is the agency's interpretation of the statute lawful? And if the court has already held, yes, it is lawful, I would think that would settle the matter. And as I say in our brief, the only reason I have any doubt about that is because of Brand X. And Brand X is a huge embarrassment for the government and the government's friend. I looked through the bottom side amicus. I counted 13 amicus briefs on the bottom side. Only two of them cited Brand X. Because, gosh, it would be nice for that decision to just go away, wouldn't it? Sorry, Justice Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) But that absolutely makes clear that, you know, this is a reliance-destroying doctrine. And, frankly, if you said that Chevron is over... And all of those step two cases that were decided are going to have stare decisis effect because of the level of generality point I made. You would be giving new stability to the law. It would be improving stability. And that's an important distinction from Kaiser. In Kaiser, you know, the Kaiser doctrine, the Auer doctrine rather, never had its brand X moment where this court made clear that the agency could flip 180 degrees. And indeed, in Kaiser itself, it suggested the opposite. But here with Chevron, we know this is a a reliance-destroying doctrine. Here's another thing to think about in terms of Kaiser. As I read the court's decision, in addition to the fact that we know it doesn't directly speak to Chevron, thanks to the Chief Justice, I also read it as all, all it says is you need a special justification. Well, I think we've offered you special justifications in droves and special justification beyond the decision being wrong. And I don't know of a case where you would defer on stare decisis grounds when the relevant decision didn't cite the relevant statute at all. 
I mean, look, this would be a different world. If Chevron went in and wrestled with Section 706 and said, despite all contrary textual indications, that it forecloses de novo review of statutes, I suppose I'd have to be here making every single stare decisis argument. But that is not what Chevron did. It didn't even mention the relevant statute. Now, of course, I don't want to be seen as running away from the stare decisis factors, because I'm happy to walk through all of them, because I think all of them cut in our favor. The decision is tremendously unworkable. Nobody knows what ambiguity is. Even my learned friend on the other side says there's no formula for it. And that's an elaboration on what the government said the last time up here, which is that nobody knows what ambiguity means. But that's just workability. Let's talk about reliance. I talked about the Brand X problems, which are very serious problems. And like, I love the Brand X case because broadband regulation provides a perfect example of the flip-flop that can happen, but it's not my only example. There are amicus briefs that talk about the National Labor Relations Board flip-flopping on everything. Ask the little sisters about stability and reliance interests as their fate changes from administration to administration. It is a, t- it is a disaster. And then you get to the real-world effects on citizens that Justice Gorsuch alluded to, but I'd like to emphasize its effect on Congress because, honestly, I think when the court was originally doing Chevron, it was looking only at a comparison between Article 2 and Article 3 and who's better at resolving these hard questions. I think it got even that question wrong, but it failed to think about the the incentives it was giving the Article 1 branch. And that's what 40 years of experience has shown us. And 40 years of experience has shown us that it's virtually impossible to legislate on meaningful issues, major questions, if you will, because because right now, Roughly half of the people in Congress at any given point are going to have their friends in the executive branch. So their choice on a controversial issue is compromise and forge a long-term solution at the cost of maybe getting a primary challenger, or instead just call up your buddy who used to be your co-staffer in the executive branch now and have him give everything on your wish list based on a broad statutory term. And my friends ask for empirical evidence. I think you just have to look at this court's docket. It's been one major rule after another. It hasn't been one major statute after another. I would have thought Congress might have addressed student loan forgiveness if that were really such an important issue to one party in, the, in, in Congress. I would have thought maybe they would have fixed the, the eviction moratorium. I could go on and on on these issues. They don't get addressed because Chevron makes it so easy for them not to tackle the hard issues and forge a permanent solution. My friends on the other side also talk about, you know, this is, this is great because it leads to uniformity in the law. Well, I don't think that's an end in itself. Again, if it were up to me, if, we're, if we think uniformity is so great, let's have uniformity and let's have the thumb on the scale inside of the citizen. But the reality is the kind of uniformity that you get under Chevron is something only the government could love because every court in the country has to agree on the current administration's view of a debatable statute. You don't get the kind of uniformity that you actually want, which is a stable decision that says this is what the statute means. Mr. Command, can I ask you the same question I asked Mr. Martinez about why Chevron was initially popular? People who were very sophisticated and had a deep understanding of how judges decide what a statute means, and a deep understanding of how administrative agencies work, thought that Chevron would be an improvement because it would take judges out of the business of making what were essentially policy decisions. Now, were they wrong then? And if they weren't wrong, then what, if anything, has changed since then? 
So, Justice Alito, I think they were partially right then. So let me say what's changed and what hasn't changed, i.e., what the Court missed back in Chevron. What has changed is we've come a long way in statutory interpretation. And, you know, if Chevron was a response to some of the excesses of the D.C. Circuit in the freewheeling days of the late 70s and the use of legislative history, and, oh, by the way, the text of this statute appears in the margin of my opinion, and I'm not going to talk about it again because I'm off to the races, we now, I think, are all textualists. The focus is much greater on the text of the statute. And once you recognize that, you recognize the problem with deferring at a certain point to the agencies. And let's look at the track record of the agencies before this court. If they are so expert, they should be able to persuade you in case after case that they're getting these statutes right. By my count and by the Cato Institute in their their amicus brief, since the court last cited Chevron, the administration is batting about 300 in these cases. So expertise is not all what it's cracked up to be. And that's true even in the most complicated cases. Look at the American Hospital Association's case. I don't think you're going to find a statute that's more complicated than that one. But yet this court had no trouble unanimously saying that you can't have hospital chain-specific pricing without first doing a survey. Well, I don't know whether you can say we had no trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I I was going to say that, but yeah. No one was troubled to write a dissent. (laughs) Let me me put it that way. And and I can use other examples. Encino, a case where this court said that Chevron wasn't applicable because of a procedural defect. Now, it split the court five to four, but how did it decide the case? Decided the case with the distributive canon. Do you think the Labor Department Wage and Hour Division is the experts on the distributive canon, or do you think the courts are? Thank thank you, Mr. Clement. Uh, The answer... uh, from Mr. Martinez on several uh, questions about what happens when you, you know, get rid of Chevron in this case, was uh, Skidmore. Uh, and if Skidmore is going to occupy a more prominent role uh, going forward, I, I'd like to know exactly what your understanding of that principle is. So my understanding of Skidmore, consistent with Justice Kavanaugh's, is it's not actually a deference doctrine call it a doctrine of weight or persuasiveness. And then the beauty of of Skidmore, as I understand it, I suppose the defect as well. Justice Scalia called it the totality of the circumstances. But I think the Skidmore test allows you to consider the weight of the agency's views, but then consider Is it something they came up with, like, right after the statute was passed, so it actually sheds light on the original public meaning of the statute? Or is it something that they didn't adopt for 20 years later? Or did they adopt one policy right after the statute was passed and actually flip it over 20 years later? All of that is something that Skidmore can account for, that Chevron has never been caused to account for. Now, you could modify it, you know, a la Kaiser, and try to add all of that to it, but I do think that the Chevron experiment has failed. Well, it's usually described as a deference doctrine. People talk about Skidmore deference. Yes, they do, Mr. Chief Justice, and that puzzled me a little bit, and I went to the dictionary and I looked up deference, and the most common definition is yielding to the will of another. And I think if that's the definition of, def- of deference, then you shouldn't apply Chevron, Skidmore rather, in a way where you actually say, all right, this is super close, and I think I have the right answer, but I'm going to yield to the position of the executive branch. Skidmore uh, has been understood to mean or said. It, it said it, the, the persuasiveness of the government's interpretation depends upon the circumstances and some of those you enumerated. 
absolutely. Call it what you will. That's what it is, right? I, look, I don't mean to be pedantic, but I do think that calling it deference I, sort of I, gets I, you to footnote <laughs> 11 land in a junior varsity way, and I think that would be yeah. unfortunate. And the other great thing about Skidmore is We're it... Uh, oh, sorry. Skidmore. I mean, what does Skidmore mean? Skidmore means if we think you're right, we'll tell you you're right. So the idea that Skidmore is going to be a backup at once you get rid of Chevron, um, that Skidmore means anything other than nothing. Skidmore has always meant nothing. I, I, Justice Jackson, the earlier one, would beg to differ with you on that score. He thought it was quite important, and I think, you know, if you look at the Skidmore case itself, I mean, it took into account the wage and hour division's view of waiting time, and ironically enough, in that case said, you know, we can't have a bright line test one way or another, because the agency has looked at this and thought a lot of time, and it's really going to be more fact-dependent than that, and we can take that into account. I think in some of these situations, you are going to be able to look at the agency's expertise and make a judgment that this is in their bailiwick. They've really made some pretty good points. But in other contexts, you're going to see that what the agency wants you to defer to is its own view that, as in this case, we ran out of money. And it sure would be nice if we could just impose this fine and continue to monitor these people at a 50 percent rate uh, by making them pay for it instead of us having to pay for it. I Thank mean, that's, there's no Thank you. expertise Justice there. Thomas? Justice Alito? I guess what I'm struck by, Mr. Clement, um, and, and, and this follows from this Skidmore thing, because Skidmore is not a doctrine of humility, but Chevron is. Chevron is a doctrine that says, you know, we recognize that there are some places where congressional direction has run out, and we think Congress would have wanted the agency to do something rather than the courts. We accept that because that's the best reading of Congress, and also because we know in our heart of hearts that, con that agencies know things that courts do not. And that's the basis of Chevron. And then you take that doctrine of humility and you put <coughs> on top of it stare decisis, another doctrine of humility, which is to suggest we don't willy-nilly reverse things unless there's an, a special justification. Here, Kaiser said, it's even more than that. There's even more reason not to reverse something because there have been 70 Supreme Court decisions relying on Chevron, because there have been 17,000 lower court decisions relying on Chevron. And you're saying blow up one doctrine of humility, blow up another doctrine of humility, and then expect anybody to think that the courts are acting like courts. With respect, Your Honor, this Court has on multiple occasions corrected its own errors when it comes to statutory interpretation, how to deal with qualified immunity, implied causes of action. In the Encino motor, cases, motor case, there was a canon of construction that said exemptions to FLSA uh, provisions should be construed narrowly. This Court overruled that and said that should have no role to play in interpreting the FLSA. It didn't run through the stare decisis factors. So I think there is is, I don't know whether you call it humility or just clarity, but when the question is judicial methodology, I think it's very weird to ask Congress to fix your problems for you. I don't think you actually want to invite, in all candor, that particular fox into your hen house and tell you how to go about interpreting statutes or how to go about dealing with qualified but immunity. Kaiser, defenses. five justices, a majority of this court, made clear that uh, uh, our deference was uh, subject to normal judicial normal principles of stare decisis, and to the extent that there was a ratchet up or a ratchet down, it ratcheted them up, 
because it understood that that deference decision supported was the basis for tens, hundreds, thousands of other decisions. So I'm going to be at a disadvantage in debating what exactly Kaiser held. But the way I read Kaiser is it said that you need a special justification beyond the decision being wrong. I think we've given you that in spades. Kaiser did not, with all due respect, wrestle with Saucier against Katz. It didn't, rec- it didn't wrestle with Gaudin in the opinion. So I think I can, I can reconcile all your law by saying, all right, when it's a procedural rule or a court-made rule of interpretation, maybe we look to some of the same factors, but they don't apply with the same weight as they would if it were a substantive result. And that does make sense because, at least under our view of the world, when you move on from a bad methodology, you don't overturn all those decisions, those substantive decisions. They still stay there. So Section 1982 still has an implied cause of action. Section 1981 still has a cause of action. I could go on and on. Those cases don't get overturned. Thank you, Mr. Clement. Justice Gorsuch? One lesson of humility is admit when you're wrong. Justice Scalia, who took Chevron, which nobody understood to include this two-step move as originally written, and turned it into what we now know. And late in life, he came to regret that decision. What do we make of that lesson about humility? No, look, I I do think that, you know, reconsidering particularly a methodological error is part of judicial humility. And I do think if you look at Justice Scalia's Perez opinion, uh, the mortgage banker cases, one of the things he said there most clearly, but he said all along, was our decision in Chevron was completely heedless of Section 706 of the APA. And if you're looking for a special justification to overturn an opinion, I think whiffing on the underlying statute entirely has got to be at the top of the list. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? A couple questions. Um, first on Skidmore, uh, I just want to say how I've thought about it, and you can tell me where this is wrong, uh, that it uh, respects contemporaneous and consistent interpretations as evidence of the proper original meaning of the statute, because that's kind of common sense in statutory interpretation more generally, that if an interpretation was contemporaneous and consistent, it's more likely to be correct. So that's respect, but the word deference I wouldn't have, wouldn't have used there. I think you have that exactly right. And one of the virtues of looking at Skidmore that way is it is consistent with a principle that this court articulated in the Christopher against Smith-Klein-Beckman case, which is sometimes the industry is the one with a consistent long-term understanding of the statute that goes all the way back and sheds light on the original public meaning. And it seems to me Skidmore allows you to say if the industry says is taking a position that's consistent from the beginning and the agency flips 25 years into the enterprise, Skidmore gives you the tools for saying, all right, agency, you're going to lose that case. Chevron doesn't. Right. The big difference between Skidmore and Chevron, there are others, is when the agency changes position every four years, uh, that's going to still get Chevron deference, but Skidmore would, the respect to that interpretation would drop out because it's not been a consistent and contemporaneous, uh, consistent from the contemporaneous understanding of the statute. Absolutely. Flip-flopping is a huge Skidmore minus, and it's a matter of indifference, or actually, if you look at some of the things that Justice Scalia said in the beginning, when he was enthusiastic about the doctrine, the fact he viewed the fact that agencies could flip-flop under Chevron as being an affirmative virtue. And uh, Justice Kagan raises uh, an important point about judicial restraint or humility 
terms of Chevron. And that that's an important concern for any judge. I think the flip side, why this is hard, the other concern for any judge is uh, abdication uh, to the executive branch running roughshod over limits established in the Constitution or, in this case, uh, by Congress. So I think we've got to find the that's, — that's why it's hard, find the right balance between restraint uh, and uh, letting the executive get away uh, with too much. On that front, do you uh, — there was questions earlier. Do judges really rely on Chevron? You want to speak to that? No, I'd love to speak to that because I think that's an important consideration. I mean, one of the premises of one of Justice Kagan's questions in the first argument was that, you know, you rarely get to Chevron step two, but there are statistics on this. There is a, you know, the most exhaustive survey of over a thousand cases by Barnett and Walker. We cited on page 33 of the blue brief. It found that courts were reaching 70, were reaching step two in 70 percent of the cases. 70% of the cases. The Cato Institute brief, you might think, well, things have gotten better because that was a longitudinal study over a number of years. You might think, well, things are getting a lot better because we've signaled that Chevron is on sort of life support. But the Cato ran the numbers for like 2020 and 2021, and it's down to 60%. But it's still well over half the time your average judge in the Court of Appeals is getting to step two uh, and Judge Kethledge, you know, he hasn't updated that speech, but as far as I know, <laughs> Judge Kethledge still hasn't gotten to step two once. And, you know, that's an, amb- that's, that's an unsettlement in the law. That's a disconnect in the law that it's very hard to get your fingers around. Like, at least if, you know, one circuit says the statute means X and another circuit says Y, everybody can see that. Cert can be granted. This court can resolve the case. But if courts are deciding some cases step one, some cases step two, in ways that are radically different, I don't even know how you really unearth that. So I think that's another huge problem with this. One uh, last question. Uh, If Chevron were overruled, I think your brief says we should go ahead and decide the issue, the statutory issue in this case. Can you speak very briefly to why? Very briefly, because I think it would give a great illustration of how to do plain old-fashioned statutory construction. It would also be a useful object lesson in how far very good judges get astray by applying Chevron. Because another problem with Chevron, I'll still try to be brief, it tends to focus on one or two terms and ask whether they're ambiguous, and you lose the context of the statute. I think if you have the context of this statute and the fact that the only other places they put these kind of fees on domestic fisheries, they put a, a, a serious cap, and then they did it only for the most well-heeled fisheries or in special circumstances, this is an easy case doing good old-fashioned statutory construction. Thank you. Justice Barrett? So we have a host of canons, clear statement rules, some of which are constitutionally inspired. And when I asked the Solicitor General in the last argument about whether Chevron should be thought of, thought of as part of that package, she said that Chevron kind of stood distinct, that Chevron was unique. Can you address that? I think she's right about that. I think it, it sits out there like an island, and that's part of the reason to overrule it. And I think all the other canons <laughs> I think all the other canons that I can think of are fully consistent with the novo statutory uh, interpretation. I might be missing one, but the ones I think of is when you're doing de novo statutory construction, you take into account all of those canons. Chevron's the only one I know that says that at a certain point, you just stop the de novo stuff and you sort of surrender, even under circumstances where if the agency weren't a litigant, you would keep going. Only Chevron does that. One last question. You said, um, you know, you pointed out that on our docket we've had multiple cases in which the major questions doctrine has come up. Do you think that overruling Chevron is going to solve that problem? Because in a lot of those cases, the agency has hung its hat on words like appropriate 
um, you know, uh, on the kind of language which I think, and you can tell me if you disagree about this, I think you agree that when a statute uses a word that leaves room for discretion, like appropriate, feasible, reasonable, that that is a delegation of authority to the agency. So don't you think agencies will still continue to rely on words like that in ways that might not, you know, limit our emergency docket? I'm not so naive to say that overruling Chevron is going to solve all the problems with the emergency docket, but it is going to make it a lot better. Because sure, there's some places where they use appropriate or they try to use modify, which was bold in light of AT&T, but whatever. They pick some of these words that are more capacious. But that broadband case is coming here. That's a case that shouldn't be uh, Chevronized. You know, some someday somebody's going to litigate whether crypto is an investment contract. Justice Kagan's confident that you know AI is going to get here because of a statute. I think it's more likely that Congress is going to say, "Well, there's some scientific officer in Commerce. We'll let them fix the problem." But so, so my my own view of this is, it's not going to it's not a cure all, but it's going to move things very much in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you. General Preliger, welcome back. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Throughout this litigation and at times this morning, petitioners have sought to characterize this case as presenting a fundamental question of the separation of powers and a test of Article Three. Will courts continue to say what the law is? But I think stepping back, I want to make sure that what doesn't get lost in the shuffle is that petitioners have made an important concession that I think illustrates that the issue here is actually far narrower and that their attacks on Chevron lack merit and are unnecessary. The concession is this. Petitioners acknowledge that Congress can expressly delegate to agencies the authority to define statutory terms and fill gaps. Imagine, for example, if the statute said in Chevron, stationary source as defined by the administrator. I take both petitioners to give that up and recognize that is a delegation and courts should respect that. The role of the court in that circumstance is to make sure that the agency has followed the proper procedures and stayed within whatever outer bounds Congress itself has set. And all of that complies with the Constitution, of course, because Congress has Article I authority to delegate gap-filling authority to agencies, and the executive has core Article II authority to fill in those gaps. That's a core exercise of the executive power. And then the Article III courts are just fulfilling their judicial role when they give effect to what Congress has done and its choice to rely on the agency in that regard. But I think what all of this shows is that the constitutional attacks on Chevron and the suggestion that it's egregiously wrong in that regard lack merit, because there is no constitutional distinction between that kind of express delegation and the delegations recognized in Chevron. If Congress can expressly vest an agency with authority to interpret the law through an express delegation, then it can do the same thing implicitly, especially in a world where Congress has to provide the agency with the express authority to carry the statute into operation with the force and effect of law. Now, we can debate, of course, whether Chevron drew the right line in identifying exactly when these delegations have occurred. I think the court got that right for all of the reasons I've tried to explain this morning. But I I think it's important to recognize that that debate doesn't have a constitutional dimension to it that falls out of the equation. Instead, it's just a question of whether the court drew the right line in identifying when a delegation has occurred. And if you recognize that, then I think what's left over are the practical concerns that have been raised about Chevron. And I don't want to diminish the force of the concerns that some members of the court have articulated. But I also think that those concerns are manageable. The court could do in this case what it did in Kaiser. It could clarify 
and articulate the limits of Chevron deference without taking the drastic step of upending decades of settled precedent. And I think that's the right thing to do here. You know, my, my friends in their briefs both said judges should aspire to be like umpires calling balls and strikes. But stare decisis is part of the rules of the game here, too. And in this case, I think all of the stare decisis factors counsel in favor of retaining Chevron. I welcome the court's questions. How do you, how do we discern uh, uh, delegation from statutory silence? So, Justice Thomas, I think that it would be wrong to suggest that you can neatly categorize cases as those involving silence and those involving ambiguity. And and the reason for that, I recognize that, that Chevron itself used both of those terms, but I think that the court was just trying to be comprehensive about those kinds of circumstances where Congress hasn't itself directly resolved an issue. There's never going to be total silence in a statute. At the very least, the agency is going to have to be able to point to the express delegation of rulemaking authority, the directive from Congress to put the statute into effect with the force of law. So that will always be at least a baseline in this context. And then in the mine run case, you'll be able to point to any number of additional features of a statute that help to signal the agency's authority. And actually, this case is the perfect example because my friend said that the Madison-Stevenson's Act here is silent on the issue of whether the industry can be required to pay for monitors. But we have four different provisions of the act that we've pointed to that undergird the agency's authority. There's the provision that expressly says that the agency can require the vessels to carry the monitors. Then there's the the definition of what a monitor is under the statute. It can include a private third party. Then there's the penalty provision that says in a circumstance where the vessel owner has contracted with a private third party and not paid, the agency can penalize. And finally, there's the residual authority to enact necessary and appropriate terms in these fishery management plans. So we don't think that this is a case about silence at all. General, yeah, that's really good. Again, we're back to the same question that Chief had of, of Mr. Clement. That's a really good statutory interpretation argument. Sounds like exactly the bread and butter of what we do every single day. And we can resolve that, right? We think that you could find that the statute is clear, but I think that... The fact that you think it's clear and Mr. Clement thinks it's clear, but a court below thought it was ambiguous should tell us something, shouldn't it? No, I disagree with that. And I should say that I think actually, if you look at both what the D.C. Circuit and the First Circuit were doing in these cases, they recognized the force of the arguments. The D.C. Circuit, it's true, and Loper Bright acknowledged that ultimately it couldn't conclude with confidence that the statute definitely authorized the agency explicitly. But you think it does? We think that there is a lot in the statute to, you, you yes, think, to support yes. the agency's yes, interpretation. Yes, you think you win under step one, and so does Mr. Clement. And yet here we are. I don't think it's at all unusual to find a case where the government thinks it has both the, the, the clear interpretation of the statute on its side and that the agency has acted reasonably. Yeah, because we have this amb- ambiguous ambiguity trigger that nobody knows what it means. Well, just now, let me just ask you about the delegation, your, your, your example in, in the opening, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I totally understand a statute that does delegate. You know, you make up <clears throat> what rate you think. And, and, and that might pose a delegation problem. Might not. Fine. But we know Congress delegated. That's one thing. What you're asking us to do is infer from a linguistic ambiguity that may not be the product of any intent at all. Pulsiver. And might mean or in some circumstances. And infer from that not that we should go to look at statutory context and other clues within the, the statute itself to determine who has the better reading, but the government should always win that case. No, not at all. Of course you should look at context. That seems to me That's very different. Just to, just, sorry, just to finish up. 
I, I understand the delegation in one context, but I struggle to see that we should infer the fiction of delegation in the second, always and necessarily. All so right, I, I disagree it. that there is a fiction of delegation in the circumstances that trigger Chevron. At the outset, I want to make perfectly clear that, of course, the statutory context and structure is one of the important tools of interpretation that a court should use at step one. So if we are in a world where the court can walk through those factors and ascertain that Congress spoke to the issue, let me just be very clear. We recognize the court then should give effect to what Congress is saying. And if what you're suggesting then is that in a world where Congress hasn't actually spoken to the issue, the court should give no respect at all to the agency's interpretation. I disagree that that is faithfully implementing Congress's intent, because what Chevron recognized is in a circumstance where Congress hasn't spoken to the issue, given the express grant of of adjudicatory or rulemaking authority to the agency, and necessarily recognize that the agency is going to have to fill the gap along the way, it is perfectly sensible to presume that Congress would want the agency to do it. Let me just ask you about Michigan versus EPA, too, because that had a very broad, it was somewhere between the example you gave of agency go forth and come up with rules and a linguistic ambiguity about the meaning of the word and. And it said, essentially, appropriate, necessary. Yet the court found there were outer boundaries even there that, that can be exceeded, right? Yes, absolutely. And we're not suggesting that in a so world where can, you're at can, Chevron. can do that, right? But what I'm disputing is the idea that there is always a binary answer either way, rather than a vesting of discretion. There was a binary answer in Michigan versus EPA, right? There was a particular agency regulation that was under review. But if I understood my friend correctly today, he seems to suggest that in all statutory contexts, you can look and say, Congress dictated it. There is a binary answer with respect to broadband, or there's a binary answer with respect to how to define stationary source. And what Chevron recognized, and what I think is just absolutely true as a matter of the -the on-the-ground realities and how Congress legislates, is that Congress doesn't actually decide all of these issues. What Chevron recognizes is that when Congress hasn't decided it, and some follow-on person is going to have to fill in the gap, and it's a question of whether it should be the courts or the agency, there is a presumption here that Congress intended it to be the agency, but always subject to those guardrails about making sure the agency's construction is reasonable. Mr. Clement Clement suggested that we should ignore Chevron because it didn't deal with 706. Um, Do you have a theory as to why it didn't address 706? Um, And and how do you respond to that part of his argument? Yes. So my theory for why Chevron didn't address 706 is because 706 has never been understood at any time, at the time it was enacted or in any of the eight decades since, to have dictated a de novo standard of review for all statutory interpretation questions. So there was no inherent tension between Section 706 and Chevron. I think it's actually just further confirmation of what the APA's own history shows. As I was trying to explain in the first argument, you know, this is a situation where the court has recognized that the APA wasn't meant to create dramatic changes. And it would have been a dramatic change, going from all of the deference principles that had been deployed, particularly in cases of ambiguity in the case law, including immediately leading up to the APA, to a de novo standard on a prospective basis going forward, would have been a big change in the relationship of how judicial review occurs for agency action. But no one mentioned that. No one suggested at the time that that was the right way to interpret the APA. It's never how this court has interpreted 
supported it. And I think this is an important point, Justice Barrett, in response to your questions about the APA. You know, it's not as though this has just been a one-off decision. The court has had any number of decisions, over 70 applying Chevron. And I think in each and every one of those, it's important to recognize that there hasn't been this kind of inherent tension between the APA and Chevron itself, which just, I think, further shows the court's own understanding of Section 706 is entitled to some weight here. So I have a question about the relationship between Brand X and your suggestion that we Kaiserize Chevron, essentially. So I understand Brand X to say that a court must let go of its best interpretation of a statute if an agency advances an inferior but plausible one. But you told us that one way to handle this would be to emphasize footnote 9 and say what we said in the Kaiser context, context that no you know, use all the tools in the toolkit and come up with your best interpretation. So why wouldn't adopting your approach require us to essentially repudiate Brand X? So if you understand Brand X to hold that the court can think it has a best interpretation, it has figured out what Congress was saying about this issue and Congress spoke and nevertheless has to adopt some inferior agency interpretation, then that is inconsistent with our approach. We, we don't read Brand X that way. I understand Brand X to be distinguishing between step one and step two holdings. So if there is a step one holding where, in fact, you know, the, the court has got it at the end of the day and recognizes that Congress spoke to the issue, there's no room under Brand X to let an agency come along after the fact and say, the statute should be understood some different way. It's only in the circumstance where there was Chevron deference granted under step two. And part and parcel of that is recognizing that that's because the statute was interpreted at the first time to not actually supply an answer dictated by Congress and instead to give the agency direction. But I'm sorry, the discretion. Court have a best answer if it's a step two question? I mean, it seems to me that having a best answer suggests that you engaged in a question of statutory interpretation, came up with your best answer, and it might just be really hard. So sometimes if a court outside of the agency context confronts a difficult question of statutory interpretation, it might say, look, I'm 90 percent confident or I'm 95 percent confident. But I mean, I, I think your reading of Brand X might depend on what the trigger for ambiguity is, right? Well, I, th- I do think that it's kind of clearly demarcating the lines between step one and step two holdings. And so at least the, the rules of the road are clear with respect to when an agency might have been granted discretion to revisit its prior conclusions. You know, if you're suggesting that there's a way to read Brand X to say that even in a circumstance factoring into the equation the possibility that Congress meant to delegate to the agency, that there is a better interpretation, a best interpretation that Congress actually resolved it, I just don't think you would ever get into the Brand X scenario because that sounds to me like a step one rule. And I take the point that there is some inherent, uh, you know, lack of precision in a term like ambiguity. That's not something that's uniquely created by Chevron, of course. There are ambiguity triggers in the laws in, in all kinds of contexts. But it's also that kind of indeterminacy that might be worrying you is not anything that's cured by overruling Chevron. Because as I was saying to Justice Kagan in the first argument, I think it will just open up a world where there is a lot of indeterminacy and inconsistency in how judges are applying the principles in a case of ambiguity. On that, on that point, um, some of the amicus briefs and the briefs point out the experience of some of the states with Chevron. Some states don't have Chevron, and other states have had something like Chevron but have um, eliminated it in recent years and decades. And their experience, they say, has shown that it's 
plenty workable in such a regime. So I just want to make sure you can respond to that. Yes. So my understanding is about half the states still have something akin to a principle of deference. There might be some variance with respect to how much it looks like Chevron. But I acknowledge that some states have abolished any form of deference to administrative agencies. I do think that there is a lot less concern at the state level about the lack of uniformity or consistency. So one of the values that Chevron implements and recognizes for why Congress would prefer for an agency to be able to set these rules and for the courts to respect that is the value in ensuring that there are uniform rules throughout the country. And I don't think that that same experience exists at the state level. And I would just add as well, in a lot of states, I think the political accountability rationales could differ as well because many state court judges are elected. Did did I understand you in response to a question from Justice Thomas to say that Chevron doesn't apply to constitutional questions? Yes, it's only a, a doctrine that applies in the context of statutory interpretation. Well, I know, but how you interpret statutes certainly can have an effect in raising particular uh, First Amendment questions or otherwise. And does it apply in that situation? Department of Education has some rule. This applies to, you know, all all schools, you know, uh, and it does it can apply to religious schools because this is how we interpret, you know, whatever the impact of the rule is. And when we interpret it that way, we don't think it raises any uh, free exercise problems. So is there Chevron deference there? So I think that if the, a particular interpretation would create serious constitutional problems, then the doctrine of constitutional avoidance is one of the traditional tools that the court can consult in order to understand whether Congress spoke to the issue. And yeah, and the agency says we don't think this causes particular uh, constitutional problems. That's our expertise about how we apply this provision, and given that, we think there's no exercise problem. No, a court would not defer to that because this is all happening at step one. I think that this is part of the process of the court determining whether Congress spoke to the issue. And the court has been very clear that deference doesn't come in at all until you get to step two. So, for example, the agency's view that it deserves Chevron deference um, or, you know, it's kind of take on one of those step one issues. It's not itself meritorious of getting any deference at that stage of the case. I do want to take another shot at trying to explain why I believe petitioners are wrong to have characterized Chevron as resting on a fiction. And I think what they have tried to say is that this doesn't really reflect what Congress is intending. But I see three principal problems with that. The first is that I think that actually looking at it from a a matter of first principles, there is a lot of merit and weight to the recognition that in a situation of genuine ambiguity, there are good reasons for Congress to want to vest the expert agency with this kind of authority. It's the recognition that agencies of necessity are going to have to fill in the gaps, and many of these programs are complex, they're technical, they're going to require the agency to draw on its longstanding experience with the program and the expertise it's accumulated in working within that regulated industry in order to make make a sensible regulation that also will encompass, I think, inherently some policy considerations. Congress would know that the agency can run a centralized decision-making process in doing this. Chevron only applies in circumstances where there is a sufficient level of formality in the agency's decision-making. That's usually notice and comment rulemaking. And that's a process where all comers can come in and tell the agency, here are our views, here's what you should think about in terms of regulating. That that, that notice point is very important, it seems to me, to your argument, um, because the the rationality of a supposition that Congress would want to favor the government rather than a supposition equally rational that it would want to favor individual liberty (coughs) is made a little more weighty 
if you assume that the government's provided everybody a notice, an opportunity to be heard. But often the government seeks deference for adjudications between individual parties and then apply that to everybody without notice to them, or deference for interpretive rules for which no notice and comment, let alone formal rulemaking or adjudicatory proceedings is required. And so there are many circumstances in which the government does seek deference for a view of the law that affected parties had no chance to be heard about. What do we do with that? So I think with respect to the category of interpretive rules, uh, it's, it's true that the court hasn't ruled out that those can receive deference in appropriate circumstances. But in, So you'd have us kaiserize that? Well, I, I would just have the court reiterate what it said in Mead, which is it's not as though any agency pronouncement is necessarily going well, to Well, nobody knows what Mead means. I mean, it's got seven factors to it, and the lower courts complain about that, too. So I'm not, I I don't know what that, I mean, you know, is that another factor we're going to add to Mead? I think that Mead is an important check on ensuring not only that there's been a delegation here, but that the agency has used the appropriate process and procedures. Okay, so so interpretive rules would be out under your new. So I think they raise a much harder question. A harder question, but are they ruled in or out on your theory? I think the court has not ruled them out under Mead. Uh, If you thought. What would you have us do? I would have you retain Mead, which recognizes What would you have us do with interpretive rules is my question, not Mead. I mean, I don't know what to do with Mead. But well, I don't think that you can treat them as a class. I think it's going to depend some, on the nature of the particular interpretive some, rule. And sometimes oftentimes, notice is required and sometimes <laughs> it isn't. How about, how about adjudications? You keep those in, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We certainly think that Chevron has core application to adjudications, and I agree that in that circumstance there's not the same ability to take the uh, input from all comers, but the court has emphasized that in the mine run case where it has been applying Chevron deference, there is this possibility at least of a centralized decision-making process in order to ensure that the agency at least is gathering the facts and has the tools at its disposal. And the alternative to each of these, Justice Gorsuch, is to have the courts do it through piecemeal litigation. At the very least, I think that it's easy to see why Congress might think that that is not as good of an alternative in a circumstance where the court's pronouncements could come out of nowhere with respect to a particular party. Now, we have an amicus brief from the small business. Except for everybody gets to litigate their case. Everybody. But, but I think that it's Until important to recognize that particular decisions can have impacts on parties who As are outside. As a matter outside. of precedent, possibly within that jurisdiction. But even that person who's bound by the precedent can appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court. Everybody gets their day in court. Absolutely. Versus, under, under your view, many people without notice, any notice, or any chance to be heard, are bound. No. So my concern, and what I was focusing on with respect to the prospect of disrupting expectations with respect to litigation, is that it's not as though every party who might stand to be affected by a case is necessarily going to know about it. Look at the amicus brief that was filed by the Small Business Association. Of course they're not going to have notice about somebody else's case, but when the government comes for them... They get to take their case to court. They get a new Obviously, judge. when they are a party, they, they have appeal. an opportunity they get to, to appeal. Okay. But Congress has often expressed a preference for not having these kinds of issues resolved piece by piece in different courts around the country with the prospect of the disuniformity that yes, that would create. Yes, it is provided for uh, noticing, it provided for formal and informal adju- formal rulemaking and adjudications. And it anticipated most of rules would be resolved that way. In fact, they aren't. For a long time, those processes haven't been used, and 
and agencies rely on informal adjudications and informal rulemakings. And really now today, perhaps as a product of Chevron and two, agencies have, have abdicated that and are moving more and more toward uh, interpretive rules where they don't have to provide notice and comment. But I think that does circle us back to the fact that the court has not suggested that interpretive rules are necessarily going to trigger deference. And so I think at least in the mine run case that this court has looked at, it's the product of a formal okay. process Thank from you. the agency. And I think it's an important process. Uh, on the adjudications front, I think one of the amicus briefs talked specifically about the NLRB in particular and kind of how that agency moves from pillar to post uh, fairly often and the concern raised there because that is a situation you you can't adjust your behavior ahead of time necessarily based on a new rule new change in interpretation what is done in the particular case and affects the people who didn't have notice you know any response to that brief or that scenario or want to tell me why that's wrong well i guess my overarching response to that set of concerns is that the agency has to justify its decision making with respect to whatever uh, tool it's using to implement the statute in the way that Congress directed. So if Congress is telling the agency you should adjudicate or you should conduct notice and comment rulemaking or giving it its authority to choose between those tools, the agency in either context is going to have to justify what it's doing. And in particular, my friends have focused a lot on the idea of agencies changing their minds. You know, there are burdens in this context. The agency has to take account of reliance interests. A lot of this gets put into State Farm, of course, but I think also at Chevron Step 2 with respect to reasonableness, a court can permissibly take those kinds of considerations into account. Thank you. Did you want to finish your answer about what you would say to uh, your friend's view of fictionalized intent? Yes. So I was trying to defend Chevron as a matter of first principles, and that was kind of the first order answer on this. That there are often really good reasons why Congress would want an expert agency to take the first crack at filling in the law. And there's no way around it. If the agency is administering the statute, the agency has got to do it. And this court has said that a core feature of executing the law is interpreting statutes along the way, understanding for the agency what the law means. The second point I wanted to make is that even in the situation where you think there's more room for doubt about exactly what was happening in 1984 and what Congress would have expected. This is a really foundational precedent from the court. It's not like Chevron has flown under the radar and Congress is unaware of it and doesn't realize it's out there and kind of setting the ground rules for how this court and lower courts are going to understand what Congress is doing. This is one of the most <coughs> frequently cited decisions from the court. And in that context in particular, I would think that the inference of legislative intent becomes all the more sound because Congress has not chosen to displace it. And as well, it triggers, I think, that critical strong form of stare decisis that the court applied in Kaiser when it recognized that in a situation where Congress is actually the best institutional actor to do something about it, it matters. It matters that Congress hasn't sought to change Chevron in any kind of fundamental way. Thank you, counsel. I do have one more. I'm Hold sorry. On. I, I, I did. I'm sorry. Sorry, I sorry, waiting. sorry. I was waiting for us to go around. Um, I know this is not in the heady um, intellectual question, but how do you respond to Mr. Clement's point about the interpretation of this particular statute and his reliance on the theory that this Congress definitely, when it capped a big industry paying 2 or 3 percent, whatever the number is, would not have wanted um, small fishermen to pay 20 percent? 
So I have a range of reactions to that. Um, my first is, as I was suggesting to Justice Gorsuch, we think, and to Justice Thomas, we think that there is a lot in this statute to support the agency's exercise of regulatory authority here. And I want to point in particular to the penalty provision, which specifically contemplates that the the Regulated vessels might have a contractual relationship with third-party monitors and therefore might be in a situation where they haven't paid. And it says the secretary can sanction in that circumstance. So it's premised on the idea that there will be certain circumstances when there is that direct relationship. Just as a footnote in the schedule, in the way that Congress did the other two monitors, they were always government monitors, not independent monitors, correct? Yes. So in the, the so there are three fee-based programs that my, my friends have relied on to try to support this idea that there's a negative inference you should draw from the statute. Two of those apply in the domestic context, and those operate as pure fee-based programs, so it's very different. <laughs> Ultimately, they pay fees to the government. The government provides a range of services, including providing the monitors, entering into the contractual relationship, and having those monitors be government cr- contractors. And those programs also pay for uh, particular administrative expenses that would not be a part of this program. The the foreign vessel program likewise operates in this fee-based way. There is a residual part of that program which contemplates that in a circumstance where there aren't sufficient funds, it might be possible that the regulated vessel will then, through a supplementary authority, be required to contract with the monitors directly. And I think my friends would say, well, that's the whole explanation for the penalty provision. But it doesn't work because Congress put that penalty provision in an overarching section of the Act that applies to domestic vessels, too. If this was really just meant to be a tendril to tack on to the foreign vessel program, that would be completely inexplicable. So I think that they don't have a persuasive response to the penalty provisions here. And they say, to, to wrap this up, that you know the, it's, it's unheard of to charge 20 percent. I do want to be really clear. They are latching on to a part of the rule that acknowledged that earlier versions or studies had suggested that costs could go potentially up to 20%. But then the agency acted in response to that. It created waivers, it created exemptions, and with respect to some of the types of fishing at issue in these cases, the estimated costs were more in the range of 2 to 3%. So it's this is all, you know, something that courts can look at and review. They in fact pressed arguments that this rule was arbitrary and capricious for neglecting to give full attention to the costs. The lower courts rejected those arguments and I think rightly so. Justice Kagan. Um, Justice Barrett asked before about Kaiserizing Chevron, and I just wanted to ask, what would that mean? I mean, would it mean doing exactly what Kaiser did to our deference, to Chevron deference? Would there be adjustments that would be necessary? Would one want to go further in any respect? What, what does it mean to Kaiserize Chevron? So I think that the court in this case, if it has some concerns about the implementation issues, could do four critical things, which draw heavily on Kaiser, but I think look a little different in their particulars. The first thing the court could do would be to reemphasize the rigor of the step one analysis. Now, this is drawn directly from Kaiser. As I mentioned before, we've seen results in the lower courts where they are now following this court's direction with respect to that. So in this regard, what the court would be saying is, Don't wave the ambiguity flag too readily. Don't give up just because the statute is dense or hard to parse. Instead, there are a lot of hard questions out there that can be solved and reveal Congress's intent if the court 
applies all of the tools and really exhausts them. So that would take care of a whole category of cases. Then at step two, I think the court could again do what it did in Kaiser, which was to reinforce that reasonableness is not just anything goes. You know, Justice Gorsuch, I think at times has said it just means the government wins, but that is not actually the standard. Even at that step two stage, it's obviously deferential, but the court should be enforcing any outer bounds in the statute and making sure that the agency hasn't transgressed those. I think the third thing the court could do is emphasize that this whole enterprise only gets off the ground in a me-type situation where you have the agency being directly empowered by Congress to speak with the force of law and then exercising appropriately a formal level of authority in implementing the statute. And so I think that that is an important principle as well, that there are certain contexts in which the agency is not actually speaking with the force of law or in a way that would be fitting with the delegation Congress has provided. And then finally, the fourth thing that the court could do, and I think this is a little bit different from Kaiser, would be to emphasize that it's always important to look at any other statutory indication that Chevron deference was not meant to apply. Um, And what I'm thinking here of are, are things like situations where the nature of the statutory question, as the court has said in other cases, isn't one where you would expect Congress to give that to the agency. There's a flavor of this in the major questions doctrine case, and I don't want to rule out other scenarios that could come up because part of our our central argument here is Congress can adjust, Congress can react, Congress can take statute-specific steps, and so courts should pay attention to that. And there is nothing in Chevron that dictates that this presumption is irrevocable. Instead, it's fully rebuttable. And is there anything you would say about the matter of changed interpretations? So I think that changed interpretations already are an area where the agency is under additional burdens to justify its decision-making. I think they get a harder look. And the court has made clear um, that in a circumstance where an agency is changing its regulatory approach, one of the things it has to do is take full account of the reliance interests and explain why those shouldn't alter what it's doing in, in, in the kind of revised approach. The agency also frequently, if it's come from a notice and comment rulemaking, has to run that process all over again. That's a a time-intensive process. It takes a substantial investment of agency resources. So I think in that context, too, the court could police the bounds of that and make sure that the agency is following the procedural requirements to ensure that it's informed decision-making. But at the end of the day, if the agency can run the gauntlet and survive those hurdles, then the fact that it has some discretion under the statute to change its approach, I think is not something to say is, is, uh, you know, kind of a bug in the statute. Instead, it's a feature because there are all kinds of circumstances circumstances where Congress would want to give the agency the ability to adapt to changing circumstances, to new factual information, or to the experience it's accumulated under the prior program. Thank you. Justice Gorsuch? Justice Kavanaugh? Justice Barrett? Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal, Mr. Clement? Just a few points in rebuttal, Your Honor. First, my friend started with express delegations. I think express delegations show all the problems with this fictional implied delegation. Because the great thing about an express delegation is you have some text. What an express delegation generally does textually is delegate implementing or executing authority. It doesn't do what Chevron purports to do, which is to delegate interpretive authority. But better yet, once you have text, you can put limits on the text. And Michigan against EPA is a perfect example of that. And of course, all of these delegations do raise Article I non-delegation concerns. And if you have text, you can check for that as well. But I can't think of anything that's more antithetical to an intelligible principle than ambiguity and silence. And I will say, in terms of the, the, you know, this premise, I think it's entirely fictional. I think in most cases, a statute is ambiguous because the proponent did not have enough votes to make it any clearer. 
My friend at one point said that I view the whole world as every statute has a binary answer. To be clear, my position was the opposite. There are statutes like that, reasonableness, appropriateness. There are also things like information services, telecommunication services, a service advisor. Is it a salesperson who is involved in the servicing of cars? I'd say yes, but you could say no, but it's binary. The terrible thing about Chevron is it can't tell the two apart. Because at a certain point, they both look ambiguous. But if you, what, you know what can tell the two apart? Good old-fashioned statutory construction. Find out, as the courts, what the words mean. Reasonable is a term of capaciousness and elasticity. Telecommunication service is not. Good old-fashioned statutory interpretation can do the job. Now, let me say the, uh, one thing about the mystery of why Section 706 did not appear in the Chevron decision. There's a really easy answer. It was a Clean Air Act case. The court sort of stumbled into these pronouncements about how, as a meta matter, you should go about statutory consideration. It was a mistake. It didn't wrestle with the relevant statute at all. That is a special justification to revisit the decision and to get the decision right. Let me say one word about expertise. Expertise and deference do not have to go hand in hand in a way that precludes de novo review. We have things called tax courts. We have things called bankruptcy courts. We have the Court of International Trade. They all deal with technical specialized issues. Every one of them, the legal questions are reviewed de novo. That's the basic understanding with a statute like Section 706. Lastly, let me say this. You cannot Kaiserize the Chevron doctrine without overruling Brand X. The fact that you could take into account if the agency had flip-flopped was part of the rationale of Kaiser money factors before you applied an hour. That is a feature, my friend correctly admits, that is a feature of the Chevron doctrine, and you really can't Kaiserize it without overruling Brand X. And if you're overruling Brand X, well, then stare decisis just went out the window, and we might as well get this right. Chevron imposed a two-step rubric that was fundamentally flawed. The right answer here is a one-step rubric that simply asks, how is the statute best read? Thank you. Thank you, Counsel General. The case is submitted.